Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to talk about the updates for um, Office Hours 2.5. Uh, we made some big changes since the last time we talked, and so we'll talk about that. And some of the team is here to give us those updates, so stay tuned for that. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we got? Nick Bat from the UK has the first question. What is my minimum spec for a four-participant Zoom ISO Mac Mini setup. Computer, PCI box, PCI card, budget is an issue. Go ahead, David. I'm running a Mac Mini 8-gig M1 machine. Um, if budget's the issue, you can grab four NDI outs from the Zoom ISO basic uh, plan. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, ditto on that. Dave's exactly right. Peter was showing me last night on After Hours exactly what it takes. You can get the uh, the, the light version of Zoom ISO, and it will run NDI. So that means you've got light for about, I think it's like 30 bucks. I don't know what it is. And uh, then you can use the uh, NDI to get that uh, video back out to a, a program that will accept those kind of virtual cameras. Good, Slalak. And one of the great things about using NDI is you can embed audio right on it. And so you can actually kind of keep the equipment a little bit lower. Yeah. And who makes the, uh, if, if someone wanted to use the HDMI out, who makes that? Um, I can't, uh, is it adaptable? Do I have one? I have one. Pluggable. Two of them. Pluggable. pluggable. So a pluggable, one thing we haven't tested yet is that pluggable has a new four output, four HDMI output. Now, I don't know if that'll actually work or not, but but it, but at 1080p it may because it doesn't require that much. So um, we're hoping to test that in the near future. Um, but uh, but the pluggable could be a way to, if you're trying to get it out to an ATEM, of course, uh, in production, I'm typically still using deck links. Uh, so I'm using um, deck link quad, which is eight outs. Uh, with a Sonnet SE1, not the SEL, <laughs> and, uh, and and a Mac Mini to get eight, eight outputs into a um, uh, ATEM ISO Extreme. So that's not the most cost effective. I mean, in comparison to what I my other kit, it's very cost effective, but it's not it's not in compared to what else, what else we were talking about here. So you just have to decide. I I still think that the um, color rendition and frame rate looks better, and the CPU hit on the computer is much lower. But I'm trying to get eight out of a Mac Mini as as opposed to four. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael. After hearing the surprising results from Sam Kokaiko from using the M2 MacBook Air for Zoomtopia, I was impressed. With the U.S. $1,200 price difference between a maxed out Air and a similar 14-inch Pro, where is the value proposition for the 14-inch Pro? Go ahead, John. If you need sustained workloads, you're going to need that fan. The M2 Air is just not going to hold up when you're doing any sort of long rendering or anything that actually is going to hit the CPU. What you heard yesterday was you're hearing 14% CPU load. A lot of that is being offloaded into that external enclosure. That's where a lot of the heat is. It's going to be taken care of by the fan in that enclosure, and you're not worried about the device itself. Uh, the M2 is great. I, I run eight outputs all the time from it. It seems to run a no problem under 15% CPU. Um, but just keep in mind that any sort of long running job or something that's going to task the CPU heavily, you're going to see the throttling and you're going to have less performance than you would like. Good, Courtney. Yep, John nailed it. It's all about the fan and the throttling, and most of that stuff is being handled by the GPU, and if they're in external GPUs in a separate box, then no problem. Yeah, the um, uh, the other thing is, is the number of Thunderbolts, and I think that there's two buses in the Pro and one bus in the, in the, um, uh, in the Air, and there's four uh, Thunderbolts in the Pro, and 
two in the air, and um, that makes the, for for me for production that makes the the, the air not usable. <laughs> so um, so for but for they were buying those for a very specific use. They knew exactly what their I/O was, and it was the most cost effective way to do that. And I think it totally made sense. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't use one. I, I barely I can barely survive with four Thunderbolt connections as opposed to two. Uh, next question, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Thoughts about the LumaCube LightFlex Pro? Has anyone used one for Zoom? And there's a link to it there. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I have not used one for Zoom. Uh, it looks like very harsh, very direct light uh, from their sample shots that they have on their website. Just keep in mind that anything that's going to be that small of a source, uh, you're going to want to get some diffusion in front of it if you're going to kind of want to leverage it for anything other than like a spotlight onto something specific. Uh, you'll notice that they were doing like like facial stuff or hair cutting, and they're wanting to get very specific light, very bright light in a specific area. Uh, I would not recommend it for Zoom. Go ahead, Bill. I would think that you could probably adapt it all right. Here's the issue. It's got a relative, it's got two relatively long, thin, and they're much longer than they are uh, wide light emitters. Um if the color rendering index, the CRI for it is pretty good, and LumaCube is pretty known for doing decent uh, CRIs, then I think you can probably find a good number of uses and something in front of a computer in a reasonably well-lit room to pop your face up might be something that this could do well. It's just not going to be as flexible as a traditional light emitter that you can put various modifiers on. Once you buy this form factor, you're kind of stuck in this form factor. And I don't even think putting bags around those lights would really affect too much their directionality or the way that they would work in terms of casting shadows. So, you know, not a bad solution, but not the one that I would go to first. As a as the use case that it's built for, what you see a phone, there's a mount for a phone in the center, and then there's two long lights there. I, I think it's actually pretty genius. I don't think I would use it for Zoom necessarily, or might to do a Zoom call, but to do something that is, I'm going to show you something that I'm working on, and I need a couple lights to to do that. Um, I think that for what they built it for, and this is the TikTok crowd, the the um, the, the you know the kind of the YouTube how to crowd. Um, I think that this could be a, a pretty interesting product. Um, next question. David Paskin from Miami, Florida. And David asks, I'm stunned by the responsiveness and amount of access to its leadership and developers Zoom provides for such a large company. How important is this for Zoom's long-term success? Go ahead, Courtney. I think it's very important because you know, if you think about how Zoom is used compared to other software products, it's public-facing. You know, when you're using Zoom, you're using it in front of a group of people live. And so, you know, uh, its weaknesses and strengths are exposed immediately. So they have to be responsive to their user base uh, to make improvements. And because it's so public-facing, any mistakes uh, or, or decisions that may be taken in the wrong direction can be quickly corrected to get it back on track. Otherwise, you don't have a product. You know. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I'm just really impressed with what they've managed. I mean, when I first used Zoom, it was back when I was doing some stuff in the education space, and they maybe had a million or two users. And uh, it was often in education. I ran into it first, actually, in elementary schools that we were working with with a product. And they had Zoom, and I'd never heard of it before, so I learned a little bit about it. When they hit the pandemic, and they went from uh, famously 2 million subscribers to 200 million in a short period of time, that is such a stress on any company. And to watch 
watch how fast they've reacted and how global their vision has become in that shorter period of time. It wouldn't have surprised me if they just tried to do bigger versions of the same thing they were doing before, but clearly they've expanded out. They've done aggressive hiring and aggressive research development. And they're working in so many verticals and things like that, that I just think it's a really strong team and they're working really hard to see the future and enable the future for people who will need this new style of communication. So um, I'm just, I've been impressed that growing like that is a tough thing in business or industry. And I think they're doing it as well as I can imagine. I, uh, <laughs> I, I we were talking about when we first used Zoom. I first used Zoom in 2012. And uh, I think it was like Frederick, Frederick Grand Johnson wanted to do um, This Week in Photo or whatever in zoom so he could stream it to you because it had it had that streaming feature to youtube and it was horrible <laughs> like it was a horrible experience it was dropping frames and breaking up and the audio was falling out of sync and i was like well this isn't gonna work <laughs> so that was my that was 10, 10 years ago that was my experience was this is horrible and um didn't really think of zoom again until uh we were uh at, we we saw it kind of picking up during covid and so i didn't have really any i mean after that it was all kinds of other things and um and uh uh you know, I think that they did do a great job, as, as Bill said, to do that. I think that the the responsiveness to from the leadership as the uh, in developers. I don't know if Zoom is doing what the liminal team is doing system wide. I think the liminal team uh, is very comfortable having those conversations with us, and they're very good at it. You know, they they know where the rules. You know, they know where the lines are where they can't cross, and they can't tell us future. Um, you know. Uh, lean things. And so they're very disciplined and also very open to where they can be. And I think that that is, I think that comes from, I, I don't think that that happens. I don't see Zoom doing that anywhere else. I think it's literally the liminal team that is, and, and the events team um, that feels comfortable uh, and, and knows that they can do it without getting in trouble. That's usually the problem is people get into, they get loose when they start talking about stuff and the team seems to be very disciplined. And I think that's why they're allowed to come talk to us is because they ha they've built up trust with with their leadership that they're not going to you know go off the off the rails so um so i think that that's i think that's really what we see there is is more of a um specific to that team than than specific to the whole company go ahead mitchell should we feel spoiled oh yeah we should <laughs> yeah, we should definitely feel spoiled should. yeah we should feel very spoiled um, that there's not that many places that they show up. Uh, we definitely don't, <laughs> not many places. I mean, there's the test kitchen, which is also a great um, place to talk to them and figure stuff out. Um, so the Zoom test kitchen is is great. I think it's today, isn't it? It's uh, it's um, at noon, is that right? Is it noon on noon today? Um, so that's another great resource to, to talk to Zoom and and, uh, and um, work with Jeff on on those things. And so, so those are the other, that's the other uh, opportunity there. Um, but uh, there's not many other ones. And a reminder that Andy will be, hanging out with us again at three today, um, answering your questions. Uh, we won't get to do that forever. <laughs> like just, just, just so you know, like uh, this is your chance to get ahead. If you looked at what happened with Zoomtopia, uh, there's a lot coming. And I think that we're at about 10% of what they have planned. And um, so I would try to keep up as best you can. Um, next question. From Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York, Scott asked, I'm hesitant to fully trust vMix and NDI from Zoom ISO in production and tend to fall back to my ATEM Extreme for events and ISO recordings. How are you using vMix in your productions? Go ahead, Tlaloc. So we use it for um, conversations with Tony Mobley. We put it up in the cloud, and I think that's one of the powerful things about vMix is that it, it fits nicely in the cloud because there's um, it runs on a, on a Windows platform. And we have had uh, 
a really robust experience with it. So um, over 75, something like that, uh, episodes. And um, and so um, it just depends on what your workflow is. It's a tool just like anything else. And so you got to look at the pros and cons and figure out where you're, where, you know, where it lines up for what you're trying to do. Go ahead, John. So unlike dedicated hardware, it's very easy to oversubscribe a machine. And so really take into consideration your CPU, your memory usage, choose a maximum. For me, that's around 70%. I don't want to exceed. I want to always have some overhead from some additional processing that could be needed. Treat that machine like you would any sort of other hardware where you're not installing any sort of superfluous software. It's dedicated for this purpose of a vMix machine. And then I think you'll have a lot more success than if you kind of have an ancillary machine you happen to have vMix on and use for production. That's going to lead to a disaster one day. And uh, just a quick note, I, I said that Andy was here this um, this Friday, but he's actually probably sleeping after this week. Uh, he will not be available this week to do it, but we, there is a meeting about the Kilo Show, our, our 1,000th anniversary, uh, so, so stay tuned for that. It should be in, the notes should be in the email that went out. Uh, next question. David Paskin, Miami, Florida, is here asking, when so many of our questions come from the same folks, I sometimes feel that we're speaking to ourselves in an echo chamber. How can we broaden our engagement, not just our viewer listenership? Yeah, so um, we do have a lot of regulars asking questions, but you will notice if you look at the variety, there is on some days, it's it on, you know, some days there's not as many people jumping in and on some days it's all over the world, you know, from people, from names that we didn't have. I mean, the, the main thing we want to do is uh, be available, you know, for fo folks to know that they can come in and we hopefully have a relatively good conversation every day that you can listen to and we're, you know, di digging into things that are interesting to be part of. And then the goal is really to be when you need it, you're going to be able to jump in. I don't, again, when we finish the 2.5, we've made a lot of really big, you know, uh, adjustments of from 2.0 to 2.5 that have, ma we'll talk about it in the second hour, that have massively increased um, stability. Um, you know, we have that, you know, a lot of things that are happening. Once we get through that, we're going to start growing in numbers. I'm not too worried about, you know, like I'm, I'm you know, because what what happens is is there's a there's a larger number of people that are watching the VOD, and of that there's a smaller percentage that are watching the live, and of that there's a smaller percentage that are asking questions, and of that there's a smaller percentage that is, you know, in Discord and being becoming part of the teams, and and so as that as the top of that funnel expands almost all of it will expand with it. We do have to communicate effectively that where people can go to ask those questions and so on and so forth. But I, but I'm not, uh, I'm not too concerned about it right now. Um, because it, it ebbs and flows with the day. You know, there's some days that attract a lot of people who want to ask lots of different questions and, and, um, and, and are interested in that. Um, I do find though, I, I think about it, but I do find that, um, on some days like today, there's a lot of people that we've seen before, but we've definitely, we, you definitely see new people every week that have just come in and asked the question that they need, you know, for, for that day. And, and that's what we want to make sure that we're available for. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, in the broadcasting industry, by the way, Alex is exactly right. In the broadcasting industry, we have a thing called churn. And uh, if we churn through our listeners, who ultimately the people we serve, uh, the people that are watching and listening, uh, even as producers, um, I think you'll find that uh, there's enough uh, turnover uh, in folks that uh, some questions it's appropriate to ask over more than one time because not everybody I, maintains a listenership every time. I'm actually surprised at how few questions are repeated. Like it, it's it's a really interesting thing. Like I would expect to have some questions asked over and over and over again. And even when questions are asked that are similar, they're from a different angle. 
you know, they're, they're from a, I, you know, a, a different personalized angle. Go ahead, Tlaloc. I would like to maybe turn this question around. I, I think that, um, you know, the panel changes each day. And there's, there's a couple different people that will come in and out and some that can't be there all the time. And so for me, when I ask questions, if I see somebody on the panel that I think might be able to help me with a particular thing I've been thinking about, I'll go, go ahead and throw that question on. And, and so, you know, I think in a way, I, I would hope that we could continue, the, the people that ask a lot of questions could continue to ask them because it's exactly what's great about this, pro, this process is to be able to, you know, really get some answers on some verticals that are that are important to us. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Next question. Next question. Comes, oh, I'm sorry. Right, here, Bill. Go ahead. No, no, no. no I just reacted. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's we're we're uh, real good at this, aren't we? Jen Zolson in Sandpoint, Idaho. I've been tasked with upgrading a 50-person training room. It currently has two old projectors. What would you guys make sure to do to give it the most flexibility and functionality? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I would get rid of the projectors and replace it with a 75-inch uh, flat-screen 4K TV, which you can get on Black Friday for probably under $600 for a TCL or a Hisense, one of the store brand branded names. They're perfectly good. They almost all come from one or two of the main panel manufacturers, so the resolution will be good. The brightness will be good. It's great. You won't have to darken the room to see what's on the screen. And um, for a 50-person room, you know, 75 might be good enough. You could go bigger if you have a bigger budget. Uh, but 75 has become a sweet spot in television monitor land, so the prices have come down considerably. And uh, you might even put one on uh, one or, you know, besides the front wall, put some on the side walls if you have people that are sitting around tables or around round tables or something instead of all facing the front. But that would be the best way. And then put in a distribution system that allows you to plug uh, one or two or multiple uh, computers into that uh, TV set to use as a monitor. John? I built a lot of training rooms. If, if you're going to display a lot of fine detail, meaning like you're trying to do walkthroughs or follow along. Um, a TV may not be the good use case for that. You're not going to get the little bit of details and kind of have it pop at the same screen size. Uh, I would recommend a Sony or Epson laser projector. A laser projector is going to give you a lot more brightness. Um, just really focus on audio as well. Uh, some reinforcement in the room so your speakers aren't having to kind of extend themselves and wear their voice out uh, will definitely help as well. Go ahead, Tlaloc. So I'd like to plus one on the laser projectors. It helps with lamp life in a big way. Um, and but but a couple of little things to think about. Make sure there's somebody to come in and maintain that those projectors. Make sure that they're cleaning out dust from the uh, fans. Um, uh, this is all very apropos because I'm dealing with some of this right now. There's a the theater that I'm working in has um, a huge amount of technology, which includes QSIS and Crestron and um, you know a lot of stuff that's in place permanently that's built for flexibility. The problem is that no one knows how to use it, and so a giant a giant system like that that and I, sh I shouldn't say giant any system like that with Crestron or QSIS, if you don't have somebody there that knows how to use it, it is no longer flexible. So think down the line and think about how it's going to be used in all the different ways and who will be who will be doing the work of using it. 
Yeah, what Tolox says, it, it, Crestron is really a subscription service. They, they call it a product service, but it's really a subscription service to the person who put it in for you because not only can you not fix it, uh, no one else can either. Usually it's garbly gook to anyone who didn't uh, do it themselves. And so, um, so I find that uh, you know, almost all the frustration I've had in almost every meeting room for the last 30 years is there's been a Crestron sitting on the desk. Um, and so that, you know, and I know that it works for a lot of people as long as you don't change it at all and it was designed well at the beginning, uh, it will work perfectly. Um, but, or you have to bring someone in, the per not just somebody, the person who did it before, bring them in to update it if you want to change things. <laughs> that's, that's been pretty much my experience with that. I would lean towards um, towards the monitors myself. Um, I don't like dealing with people walking in front of the projectors and I don't like looking at them and in a small space. In a big space, we use projectors all the time. Um, but when they're in a lower hanging situation where there's gonna be a lot of um, occlusion of people or people might be able to see the projector, which I find to be, I don't like looking into projectors very much, by, even by accident. Um, so uh, the 86 inch monitor uh, TVs now are relatively inexpensive. They're like 1500 bucks each. You're not gonna get a, you're not gonna get a, a projector at $1,500 that's as bright as an 86 inch monitor. Um, and I think that for 50 people, you're not talking, I mean, in my world, 50 people is not very far from the screens. And so you, 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 know, you wouldn't get much more um, you know, from a projector in size. Um, and, and so those are 4K 86 inches that are LG makes and everything else. I probably lean towards that, but I, but I also, again, would probably build something that's more lower level as far as the routing goes. Um, now I will have a tendency to change everything to SDI and then, and then route everything that way and then, and then convert it back to the monitor, um, to HDMI because it's just the, 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 the tools for SDI are a lot better than the tools for HDMI, <laughs> you know, as far as routing, as far as, you know, how you route things. And so um, it's the routing part that, that, that bothers me the most. So uh, next question. Next question in from David Paskin in Miami, Florida. David asked, I'm teaching a class next semester for a group of rabbinical students on how to use technology to enrich, deepen, and broaden their work. What core ideas or knowledge should be required for these non-techies who want to make the most of these tools? Go ahead, Tomalek. I think I, I, I almost didn't answer this question because I, I I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I have the right thing for what you're after, David. But That's never stopped I, us before. It's never stopped us before, right. But David, I think one of the things that I find non-technical people to miss so often is, is signal flow, signal path. Right? How does one thing hook up to another thing and not to get sort of detoured by, oh my God, this is all so complicated, and just to go step by step by step down the line and figure out what's, what's in place. So that way, if something happens, they can go back down that line and then find the issue. Yeah, go ahead, John. I think one thing that we miss a lot of times from the technical aspect is what are we trying to do? What is the important thing that people should come away with? And how do we best represent what we're trying to do? So if we take a look at first, remove the technology, find out what we're trying to do, what how we're trying to leave people feeling, how, how do we leverage technology to do that part? Not just, hey, I got to do this web stream. Well, why are we doing it? What is the point of it? What do we want to get across? Is, you know, is audio the most important? Is there a visible representation that's going to make a big difference? And then building our events and shows around that. Yeah, it basic ball handling skills. <laughs> that's what I talk about a lot, no matter what sport you have there. It, it is the most important piece of this is to have good audio, have large light sources, have 
a good, a relatively good camera, you know, those are going to be the things that you start with. Um, I think it's very easy for people to get into lots of tricks, you know, of all these cool things that they can do. Um, when it's does to, to both the points that were made here, does that move the ball forward? Does that actually, is that going to actually generate um, things? And I wanted to, every time someone asks a question like this, I, I, I want to see if I can find this really quickly here. I usually have it leafed over, but because um, I always find that this is, here we go. I just, I'll read, I'll read you something. Um, so um the uh because this is this is how i think about things and i, I want to read it in, in 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 place um uh an idea this is from uh zen and the japanese culture by, by dt suzuki um an idea however worthy and desirable in itself becomes a disease when the mind is obsessed with it the diseases and obsessions the swordsman has to get rid of are one the desire for victory two the desire to resort to technical cunning Three, the desire to display all that he has learned. Four, the desire to overawe the enemy. Five, the desire to play a passive role. And six, the desire to get rid of whatever disease he's likely to be infected with. Those are the six things that I think about all the time when I think about presentations. <laughs> because it's so easy to, to, to not do enough. It's so easy to try to show off everything that you learned. It's so easy to try to overawe the enemy. You know, like overawe the enemy, but in that case, I know, I know enemy and student doesn't really like. But overawe the people that are there. The point is, is that those things are things you just, what you have to stay focused on is the actual execution of what needs to be done. And I think that that is the most important part. And, and every tool needs to be looked through in that filter of, of what is, you know, what is going to communicate that effectively and not be whiz bang, but be truly effective. And I think that a lot of people get lost. I was talking to someone about holograms the other day, like they want to put, you know, they can we put holograms on the, you know, on the stage? And I'm like, you can, <laughs> like you can put holograms on it, but the amount of effort that you're going to spend putting the holograms on it is not going to improve the communication with the audience. Like that's not going to improve the connection with the people who are sitting there. You know, that, that authentic connection is what you're trying to find. And, and, and you're, you're trying to use the technology to get rid of, you know, all the things that are, that are description. I think that that's the thing that we get challenged with the most. Next question. Regular panelist Jeffrey Powers from Madison, Wisconsin comes in. Ola from Barcelona. Just watch Nick Mayani stuff a Mac Mini into a Wii. It got me thinking how we could mod the Mini or studio for an all-in-one production machine for video inputs, XLR audio, etc. There's a link there. I will admit that I am uh, religious about not taking Apple products apart. Like just, I just do not, I do not mod them. I did. The very first Apple product I got, an Apple IIe, the first thing I did was mod it. <laughs> I connected it. I wired it up so it would run, run and go into my stereo. Uh, you know, but um, uh, but that is, you know, I most times I've modded Apple products. I have paid a heavy price, you know, for, for doing that. They're just not built that way. Go ahead, John. If you've ever seen a breakdown of a, of a Mac Mini or the Mac Studio, you'll notice that the power supply has of a lot of exposed parts to it. Uh, so that's something I'd be very, very careful of. That will end up killing you if you uh, ground that wrong, do anything wrong with, with the PSU portion of it. Yeah, and I will say that I look at people who do examples on YouTube and only half believe most of them. So the question is, is that, you know, they said that they did that, <laughs> you know, and so, um, but I, I, I don't take it on its surface. I'd have to do it myself and I wouldn't take a mini apart and do something else with it. Next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio asked, does the panel have any experience with crowd mics? 
The voice mic features sound interesting, but not very practical. Good, Bill. This was not on my radar before this question came up, but I looked at it in the off time, and I'm, I'm really interested. The idea that your audience probably all has smartphones, or at least a, a vast majority of them, and that it would be possible, instead of passing a mic through the audience, to have people somehow come into the meeting via the phone in their pocket, and that, that would increase signal-to-noise ratio and allow that person to kind of join a uh, in-room event and get clearer audio, I think is pretty interesting. There's a lot more research that's been done in this area. So I'm, I'm not sure how it actually works. It's a, it's a heavy lift to get something close to your mouth in a room and not get a feedback loop going. But if they manage that, I think it would be a real interesting technology. Go ahead, David. Yeah, I also hadn't heard about it. And, and I think it's both fascinating and terrifying. Um, giving everybody a microphone, Alex has said many, many times. Um, I mean, I'm also thinking about, you know, how easy is it to take control of the microphone and the sound system? Um, it requires a, a hardware box that uh, is plugged into Ethernet. There's a um, participant app. There's a, um, I guess, administrator or manager app. So you get to choose whose mic is open, whose mic isn't open. I also think it's a little creepy that how easy it would be to remotely control whether my mic is open or not. Um, but it's it's very interesting. It's not just for speaking. There's also uh, chat that's available and there's uh, polls and things like that. So interesting and scary. Yeah, go ahead, John. I'd be concerned about the latency. Um, translating that over over a network. And then you know how people get when they hear themselves back just you know, 30, 40 milliseconds behind. They're going to start stumbling over themselves. I would be more interested if it was like, a, hey, I could record a question. That question could be played back. Uh, Biamp makes really great hardware. Uh, they've been in the game for a long time uh, with integration stuff. So it'd be really interesting to see. I love that there's a balanced output out. Uh, you can definitely tell it's something built from an integration side and not really live events. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was concerned about the latency as well. Um, it's obviously not using the cellular network. It's using Wi-Fi to connect uh, these microphones to the uh, to the distribution box that you plug into your PA system. So latency may be pretty slow, but you never know. And, and also echo cancellation may be a problem if they're sitting right in front of a PA speaker. It must have to deal with that in some, I mean, uh, feedback in some problem uh, problem situations where the person responding is sitting right next to a PA speaker. If I don't live a right life and I end up in hell, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be sitting in a room with open mics. Like people just asking questions on open mics and droning along. That's, that's like literally my de definition of hell. Um, so, uh, the, uh, it is open. The idea to have it, give everybody an open mic. I don't, we, McConnell was created to get rid of open mics in, 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 in off in seminar rooms. I'm <laughs> just you know, like the very first version of it was that I don't want any, mics in the room ever and every organization that that used it in the, the for the first version and it stopped using they didn't, didn't necessarily use our product but they stopped having open mics within a year it was just poisoned their system because it was so much better to just have people have text <laughs> and vote things up and down you know and occasionally take someone who asked that question and bring them up to the stage or give them a mic but not every question you know if it was a great question and we wanted to we already saw the question We'd already set the question up and we'd bring that person up. It made sense um, or brought a mic to that person. But the idea of open mics is a horrible idea. 
Like it is a horrible idea. <laughs> like, you know, and, and when you think it, oh, it works on radio, that's because they talk to a producer and then they talk to another producer and then they and then they try to make sure that they weren't crazy. And even then they come on and they're crazy. So, you know, so the, you know, it is listening to people, people, average civilians don't know how to package their ideas into something that is useful. <laughs> like that, that is the problem with open mics. Go ahead, uh, David. Um, there have been a few times when panelists have asked a question and not raised their hand for their own question, and you or the host has asked them to deepen their thought or reflect on on mm -hmm. uh, someone's answer. Do you imagine a time when that, when what you just described of inviting? And we do carefully. that in, in events no, that in, I work on. But non right, but here in office hours, do you imagine a time when maybe we, someone who asked a question who isn't on the panel, were able to bring them up? Yeah, yeah. No, no. We, we've there are system. There's parts of Makana that that haven't been fully developed that were designed around that. The idea is that I could take that question, send that. You know, the idea is I could either send that person a link, or eventually have you know just have something flag up and you click on it and it would just pull you into you know into the event. And so the um and we had an earlier version of Makana um, that wasn't called Makana, had that feature in it. So it would actually literally send you a link and bring you straight into um, Hangout at the time. Um, so you definitely, there is a opportunity to have an interaction with folks that you want to have if they have the right question, but you want to see the question first. <laughs> and you want to ask it first, because then what it allows the speaker to do is cut them off if they do anything else. So they've, you know, we've now set up the relationship. We don't know what they're going to ask when they open up a mic. When we ask the, their question for them, and then we say, hey, we'd like to get more information, we now have set, we've now put that person in a box that we can sit there and whack on them <laughs> nicely to keep them in that box as opposed to letting them drone on, you know, which is what, you know, 90, you know, there's, there's always that moment when someone comes up to an open mic and, and then everyone's all teary and they had a great experience and they're super inspired. And that happens once out of every hundred. The other 99 are people like blah, 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 blah. And then they ask a dumb question that no one wants to hear, you know? And so, and I've been the person that asked that, did that, you know? So like, I, I'm like, I know what it's like on the other side. You forget how much you're nervous. You're, you're in front of a mic. And you forget how much time you just took to set up the, the question. And what you really wanted to say was the, set, the setup. And then you had to find a question that you could latch on to the end of it that was contextual so that you could, you could say the thing that you wanted to say in the conversation. I get it. But, um, but that's not from, a, from how do you serve the entire audience? That is not a good method. You know, open mics are, you know, are boring. You know, they, just, they just draw the, they draw the um, and it's so much faster when you use text. You know, and, and people voted on it. People are stakeholders in that question as opposed to just what you wanted to ask. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's great until somebody says Baba Booey, and then it's all over. <laughs> Next question. Next question in from J.J. McKenna in Santa Venetia, California. What is the smallest form factor audio mixer, four to eight channels, that one could control remotely either via VPN or otherwise? Good, Fallock. I think... You could use the Flow 8. It's a pretty small form factor. And then you could, um, it has a, a very robust MIDI control setup. And then you could use Isadora or, or something like it to send the MIDI commands over to the Flow 8 and then use Universe to talk to Isadora, just kind of like we do on this show. Go, John. The M32C or the X Air, I think, are um, probably the smallest form factors that I use. They have solid applications. I uh, definitely didn't think about the flow eight, but that's definitely another one that would be 
be a great example to use. I am, uh, now that I'm out of production for a little while, I'm going to be experimenting with a mix bus on a Mac mini, <laughs> you know, so I can take, send Dante to the mix bus, to mix bus, um, by Harrison and, um, have a piece of software there that will be definitely controllable over VPN. Um, and, um, and so I'm, I'm going to be experimenting with that for other things that we're trying to figure out. I, I'm uh, figuring out audio in a small platform remotely controlled is something that, is complicated. The other thing, of course, the X32, the, now I think John was talking about the, the X32C. I don't know about that. The, there's a Midas that's a 1U that goes across and then the XR18 would do it as well. Next question. Next one in from Eric Nathan in Bellingham, Washington. Has anyone had experience with companies like the switch.tv? How do you work with them? Yeah, I probably talk to the Switch about once a week. <laughs> so, so, so that's a that's a, that's a that's a that's a company I know very well. Uh, I've used them for the last decade. Um, so, there are a variety of different ways. What the Switch does is it provides a reliable transport of video um, over around the world, but mostly in the United States. But they've expanded to most parts of the world as well. Um, and and what they do is they they provide it's a private fiber network. So they're it's not private in the sense that they built all their own fiber, but they 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 basically book. Uh, circuits from AT&T, Verizon, um, and a couple others to um, basically have a dedicated circuit that is a typically a 1 or 1.4 gig connection. Um, and then what they can do is they can put very low latency vi video over it at very high quality. I mean, they can literally send uncompressed 422 over the internet, you know, and, and they might be able to do 444 as well. Um, and so, uh, so they can send uncompressed HD, uncompressed uh, 4K, that's really expensive. Um, but uh, their low bandwidth version of it is 270 megs a second. <laughs> you know, like it is, it is a, you know, and the latency from, uh, the raw latency from like San Francisco to New York is I think uh, in the 50 millisecond range or less. Um, so that's a couple frames, uh, more than or less than the delay that we put into our mics, <laughs> you know, for for this. Uh, their latency from China to Connecticut, I think, is in the 350, 400 range. So, so the um, so it's it's very, very, very low, very, very, very high quality, and very reliable. It's also pretty expensive compared to everything else. I mean, you're talking about um, paying. If you have a switch connection, you're paying for a circuit. You're paying for what they call distance uh, ICOD. Uh, ICOD is the is what it costs to get between. Um, you, you're paying a three minute, three dollars a minute, or six dollars a minute to have, you know, to move this stuff. Typically, I mean, you can get you can buy it in bulk as well, but that's kind of the raw number. Um, it's used heavily by networks. Um, you know, so if you're gonna, you know, almost every. Uh, Almost every uh, arena, every stadium, all has are all on the switch, you know, and and that's at least one of the pipelines out for every football game and um, every uh, you know many 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 events. <laughs> so uh, they can they can also drop what's called a Nimbra, which is a um, it's a Net Insights makes this Nimbra that lets you put cards into it. So for instance, you can say I'm going to put a Maddie card in and I'm going to send 128 channel or 64 channels or 128 channels over that. Uh, over the um, the switch and have them pop out pristine, uncompressed on the other end on another Matty card. You can also have Ethernet on either end. You can have video on either end. You can have you know all kinds of things. And so it's super powerful. There's other things in the in the market. Um, none none quite as good as the switch. Um, Vivix is another one that has been around for a long time. Uh, they are much more expensive, much less flexible, um, but they are still they still have incumbency in some arenas and. And so on and so forth. So you see Vivix every once in a while, but not very often. Uh, LTN is a lower cost version. It's lower cost, um, not quite the same quality, and definitely not the same latency. Um, but they'll send you a box and, and make that work too. 
Um, and then, you know, so those are the, probably the big three as far as what it, you know, the services that, that um, provide that. But there's also older ones like AVOC, which is Verizon's, which you mostly see in Washington, D.C. Um, and then after that, people are just booking fiber. So anyway, that's, that's what it does. Um, and uh, it's, it's a pretty, pretty cool service. Now, next question. Tom Ferguson from Phoenix, Arizona, and right here on our panel. Last night, I was updating my wife's iPad to the latest version, and the screen went to a page with, quote, attempting data recovery, unquote, after about 25 minutes with the update finished normally. But this was a little disturbing. You go ahead, Tom. Yes, I was just doing a normal update, and here comes this screen all of a sudden. Looks like this. And that progress bar wasn't moving for about seven minutes. And I thought the thing had just locked up and gone away. I used Google. Don't see anything out there that really tells me what this is. Just wondered if anyone else had run into it. Is it an old iPad or a, or a new iPad? It's last year's iPad Pro. And it's now working fine? Yeah. Yeah, that that looks like a pretty dangerous. <laughs> looks like something went horribly wrong, you know. And it <laughs> try to figure it out. That um, is why you want to back up before you do any updates, um, you know, so that you can you can recover it to something else. Uh, yeah, got one. Yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's why you want to recover it. But it definitely looks like something. The one thing I have learned with Apple products is sometimes they will hang for a while when they're doing an update. I've learned not to to be impatient, which it looks like you were not impatient. You were you were patient. And let it do its thing. I'll leave an I'll leave an Apple device all night if it's, if it does something fun, funny now if it if it's been there all night when I wake up in the morning if it's still in that state I'll restart it but I won't restart it quickly because um, oftentimes it won't come back <laughs> so it I, and I've only had to deal with that probably three or four times in twenty years so I'm not it's not that big of a deal <laughs> but but that that kind of message is pretty scary um, next question Isaac Lay from Dayton Ohio is here Isaac asks where do you go for training on shot calling and general video directing. House of Worship is my specific application, but the core discipline should still apply, right? Go ahead, David. Isaac, I don't have a specific place, but but what I would offer is, uh, from my experience, uh, two years ago, um, we had um, we hired someone who I was an expert in video and, and all of the stuff to come in and cut our high holiday services. This year, this past year, I did it myself. And the difference between the two was stark. He, he was lovely and did a fine job. But the, the defining thing that I was able to bring that made it better is that I knew the liturgy. I knew the flow of the service, the flow of the event, what, whatever it's that you're doing. And so I, the one piece of advice that I would offer is that it's not enough to know how to press the buttons and what buttons to press and how to plug this into that. It, specifically for houses of worship, knowing the flow of the service, the liturgy, or for any other venue, the event flow, having a clear, uh, and, and it's not just about knowing what's coming after what, it's when something goes awry, knowing how to, what you can jump to, what you can cut to, uh, so that the flow continues. That's what I would offer. Go to Lalek. There's a few different layers of uh, possibility for practice here in this in this platform in terms of you know going connecting up with the back end here and helping cut the show on office hours. You can reach out to the me or Tony or, um, for conversations with Tony Mobley, and you can cut that show again. 
David is 100% correct. It's a different show flow. But what you'll learn is maybe some of the terminology or how things, um, how, you know, the, the idea of previewing something and then cutting it. Um, you know, you'll, you'll learn some of those basic things. Uh, maybe you already have that. Um, and then uh, watch this space as well, because we sometimes do other kinds of things where maybe it's a concert or maybe it's something else that 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 um, you can you can get your hands on and 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 cut. Also, accidental theater is an incredible uh, uh, thing to look into where you can cut shows uh, over in Belfast and kind of get your hands on some equipment there. It's amazing how when you think about it, how much we actually have to work with here. You go, John. Yeah, I would look at other local uh, houses of worship, uh, people that you look up to for production uh, and get involved into what they're doing. Even if you were to take a month off of your normal uh, worship setting and go attend there, um, get plugged into what they're doing from a volunteer basis. Um, most people I've involved myself with, other production houses from from different churches, uh, it's always really ended up well, another good relationship potential backups if you need it, um, as well as just understanding what they're doing, how they're doing it, what's successful, and then you can take back what you want to your house worship. Yeah, the the more that you can get practice to what Tlaloc was talking about is the more you can practice doing it. A lot of this is what everyone's talked about, John and David and Tlaloc, is pushing out your horizon of events, pushing out when you see something that needs to be done versus when you have to do it. You know, so so when you you want to push your horizon of events away from you, <laughs> so so that you see events coming and you go, oh, I know what I have to do before they get to you. Uh, when you're starting, you're what we call you're sometimes in your horizon events or 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 past your horizon of events where you should have done a bunch of things that have already happened, you know, and, and the only way to push that, one of the only ways to push that horizon of events away from you is uh, practice because you just have to, you have to have seen this before and you have to get that, you have to keep pushing that horizon events away from you so that you can make proper, proper question. And that just comes from experience. That is the, you know, um, it was, it keeps coming up, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell thing about 10,000 hours and he, he stole that, you know, um, he steals most of what he does um, and just repackages it up. Um, it's not 10,000 hours. Uh, it is in Zen, in, in Zen Buddhism, it is uh, 10,000 mistakes. <laughs> 10,000 mistakes that you need to make, um, which is so much deeper than 10,000 hours. It's not about doing things that are easy. It's it's 10,000 mistakes that you have to do. That's the difference between a novice and a master is the mistakes. And you just have to make them, you know, and there's no way around making them. You know, like you can you can get better training, you can watch the other things, but in, in the end, you just have to be in it. You know, and your mistakes will get smaller and better. You know, you want to keep on, you know, one of the things we talked about a lot in PixelCore for a long time was just keep making new mistakes. And even now, keep making new mistakes. You know, so take the old mistakes and try to figure out how you never do those again so that you can open the door to make new ones. You know, and so, and the, the mistakes that a very seasoned TD makes is much different than the mistakes that I make, right? You know, or, or that, that someone starting makes, they makes they make horrible mistakes. You listen to someone that's doing a broadcast for a big show and the mistakes they make, you don't even see, you know, but there's a lot of upset and swearing and yelling at each other <laughs> about, about what just happened there. And if you're watching it as a show, you wouldn't know that, you know, but someone made a mistake, you know, that they, that they, that they figured around because they pushed the horizon of events away. They have a, a large crew that knows what they're doing. So those are the things that are important, but I would highly recommend getting involved with our, you know, we're going to have more and more shows. We're going to have more and more opportunities over next year. And we're figuring out how to do this globally where people can do it from anywhere. And it'll affect 
learning how to, you know, it's not just how to use our software. It's really just how to think about a show. And that's what you want to get involved in as, as much as and often as you can. Um, next question. James Babbitt in San Diego asked on MacBreak, Leo mentioned that Andy Carluccio helped Twit with Zoom ISO. How is Twit changing their system? For a long time, Twit had, you know, individual uh, computers that were, and it's what we had known, I know as well, individual computers that had one in, one out. So you had, I could talk back to you, I'd get your audio separately. The, prop, the advantage of that is you have a lot of control, and if anything goes wrong, it's only one person, and you can talk to them. And the disadvantage is that there's a lot of, um, uh, the disadvantage of that is that, uh, that there's a lot more latency, double the latency, because it comes to us and then goes back out. It goes to the server, comes to us, then goes back to the server, then goes to the person. So it's doubling up your latency. Um, so what we're doing here in office hours is has literally informed Leo. And like Leo was at the, he, we had him on Michael Krasny's show. And so he was at the office and and he got to see what we use in 09 And then he got to see what we were doing for office hours. And he got excited about it. He realized that that was going to make his, his shows better, um, you know, there. And... Uh, Andy was kind enough to offer to make sure to help him to make sure that they were successful there. So they're in that process. They're still working out a couple kinks, but I think it'll all be Zoom ISO within the next week or two. Yeah, it's it's uh, they're making they're a lot lots of, and you can feel it as a as a person who's been on MacBreak since the beginning. The moment we turned on Zoom ISO as a test last week, I could immediately feel the latency just drop. You know, and it's just a much more lively conversation. It makes a huge difference. Uh, next question. Next question from Vinny DeSalvo in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Any recommendations for regarding audio engagement tools? Audience. Used... I don't think it's audio. It's audience. Oh, pardon me. Audience engagement tools. I've used Poll Everywhere before along with a few others, but wondering if there are any suggestions from the group. Go, David. Poll Everywhere, Mentimeter, Padlet, these are all wonderful. The one thing that I would uh, uh, warn or caution is... If you're in Zoom, specifically if you're in Zoom, right? So you're in a meeting and your desktop or your phone or your tablet or whatever is, is dedicated to that meeting, to ask people to open up something outside of Zoom can be really, really tricky. I've never quite understood the idea of putting a QR code uh, on screen because most normal people don't have a million screens in front of them and a phone that they can take out and scan a QR code. They're usually watching on their phone or on their tablet that they would use to, to grab a QR code. So I, I would look at Zoom apps. Um, I would look at Comenda when it's available. Um, at ways to, to, to keep people in one ecosystem with one screen, because again, normal folks don't have the, the, capacity that we do to have multiple windows open and, and engage with multiple tools. Yeah. The one thing that, that Makana now has and, you know, Commenda will have as well um, as we go forward is the, there's a, a light version. A lot of people, a lot of people use the light version. That light version is designed to use your phone in a, in along with a larger screen. That's why it exists. So it's, you know, so it, we use it a lot with that QR code where we actually put it on big theater screens. <laughs> you see a QR code and you can point at it and it will pop up, it'll pop up a place to ask questions on the phone um, immediately on a web page or whatever. So it's super low friction to get those questions in. And um, so anyway, so that's how, that's why we use the QR codes is because we assume that someone's going to have whatever they're watching the event on, as well as their phone. Not many people go into long events on their phone. We've, we've found that, that that's not a typical behavior. Usually it's an iPad or 
Android tablet or um, a, a computer. So they usually have their phone available to them. So having something that executes against that is is um, is useful. Uh, again, we're we're expanding the use of Makana, which you know people have been reaching out to me about. And so we're slowly putting that out there. Um, so you can contact me about that. The um, um, and we'll do a lot more next year. <laughs> so uh, the um, uh, the there's other there's also Slido, which takes polls and you know comments and so on and so forth. Uh, what I would rank when you think about interaction for folks, um, the the ranking is polls are probably the the lower end of interaction. Um, you know, there's just you know reading people's comments is probably the lowest <laughs> part of the interaction that's the least interesting. Polls is the next step up from that, so it's kind of useful. Answering people's questions is considerably more engaging than polls. Um, so people asking questions about what they're interested in, that's why they came here. They came here to learn something. And so if you give that to them and you keep on, that's what we do here in the show. So answering people's questions, we try to persuade people to, uh, instead of, we, we try to flip it. They want to talk for 40 minutes and then have 10 minutes of Q&A. That is exactly opposite of what actually works. You want to talk for 10 minutes at most and then answer questions for 40 minutes. <laughs> you know, let the audience, you know, you know, and if you can't say you, almost everybody I've ever seen talk for 40 minutes could have done that in, in 10. <laughs> like, you know, like they're trying to stretch out and figure out how you fill 40 minutes of stuff and get rid of it and then have a bunch of stuff that you can show if people ask those questions. But, you know, figure out a way to package it into 10 minutes and then open it up for Q and A, and so that and that is a because what it does is it keeps the viewer in an active listening mode as opposed to a passive listening mode, and they will absorb three times more information in an active listening mode than they will in a passive listening mode. So, so you you need to um, you need to really figure that out. The most the most engaging thing is a kinetic interaction with the audience, and we've only done that a handful of times because it's complicated, and everyone's all heard about the flamethrower in the past. So. Um, the having the audience be able to affect physical things in the real world with comments or questions or emojis turns them on fire. Like, like it is like a, I mean, it's, but it's like opening up a fusion reactor. You know, you, you know, literally it tears apart events because people get so excited about doing it. So that is the ultimate interactive tool. Uh, it's just harder to execute, but it's something we're going to spend a lot of time on next year because it, I, I, it's just figuring out how to contain it. It's, it's just like literally a, a, nu a nuclear reaction and you open it up and suddenly there's this huge ex explosion of excitement and you just don't know how to deal with it yet. And we haven't figured out how to contain it into something that's useful. Go ahead, David. One step down from that, <clears throat> excuse me, which they did at Zoomtopia is, um, and I know you you don't like the reaction yeah, walls, but yeah, I, okay. But it's fine, it's fine. I, I get people like them. I mean, that's cute. But there were a few sessions where I saw people making comments, chatting, and they were saying, I'm chatting so that I can see my chat on the wall. And so seeing, you know, you're not affecting something in reality, but you are, um, you are impacting the, the experience that other people are having. And I think maybe that might be the key is that engagement isn't just about how can I as the presenter impact you, but how can I allow you to impact other people? Yeah, and and there's a couple different places that we go with this uh, in larger events, not not like office hours currently, but in larger events when the questions come in, they get routed by we have a, we have moderators and sometimes multiple moderators, so we can actually load balance the lot the moderation so that people can you know see if you're getting a lot of questions coming in, like we've gotten 
as many as over 5,000 questions in 20 minutes. And so, so in, in that case, you have to figure out how you're going to load balance it. But when it comes into a moderator, the moderator can do a couple different things. And, and sometimes we have, we filter it in different ways. So the moderators see different things. So you might have one that is just managing the ticker. And in the, in, in the ticker, that person is just pushing comments to the, un, the a ticker that runs across the bottom of the screen. And it's like, hi from da 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 da, hi from, I'm so excited, this is great. All those short things go to the ticker. And what you do there is you say, I want a maximum number of, I don't want more than 12 words. 12 words turns out to be a, a per important thing for us. So 12 words, I don't want more than 12 words. And so that's all they see is less than 12 words. And they're seeing all the comments. Unfortunately, they see all the cruft as well. Um, I, I apologize to people who have to do that. Um, and then you have the, the people who are managing questions and we have them filter more than 12 words. <laughs> so anything more, like just get rid of all the short comments. Look, we're looking for questions. And this is when we're kind of pulling through a general comment field like Facebook, you know, or, or YouTube. Um, but in, in Makana, we don't have to do that because it's separate anyway. Um, but then you're taking the questions and they have to make a decision about where they go. So they can go to people answering via text and you'll have those. And then you send some to the show, right? And that's the, you know, and that's how we break those up so that they... Um, um, and, and so you decide there's a handful of them are going to go up to the show. The rest are going to answer by text. When you do the text answering, um, you can get up to a answer velocity of you know 200 questions an hour. And if you're doing like a product thing or something about that, you've got a bunch of people on the back end that are smart and can answer all the lower end questions. Then you have then you push them to the show. It's very engaging. Like it is, like it's. Uh, it has been described to me by people who have been in those kinds of events that we've done that it's almost exhausting for the for the audience because so you have to be kind of careful of like giving them a break because it's so much data coming into their into the, they're watching everything like they sit there and, and and what we learned was putting it all in front of them and feeding them all that information they won't look up they won't check their email they won't check anything they'll just sit there and just pull all that information in and they learn more about the product or the idea than anything else we've done. Um, but it's oftentimes it's still a thing that's hard to get clients to, to, it's a very new way to do it, but it's very effective. And we've been doing it with different versions of Makana for the last decade. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia is here asking a question. I've got an 80-year-old House of Worship member who comes into services with a landline at a senior citizen housing. What is the best way for her to come into the Zoom meeting? Is it still the portal or a cell phone? Go ahead, Tlaloc. I think the portal is a good is a good option. Um, the cell phone probably might be a little fiddly, but um, you could you could use an iPad because it has uh, you know that automated following thing. But I think probably the portal is the simplest for the co cost effectively. I think the portal is probably the best. I still would probably I still don't um, keep my portal open when I'm not using it. So I plug it in when I need to use it, and then I unplug it when I'm I don't leave it opened in my office. Next question. Lucas Herzog from Mans, not sure where that is. My USB-C to HDMI adapter just died. Are there brand models of Thunderbolt or USB-C hubs you'd recommend? Requirements would be Ethernet, HDMI, and a few USB ports. Good, John. Uh, as far as docs go, uh, the CalDigit docs are really good. OWC makes very good docs as well. Uh, I've had good luck with StarTech uh, docs in the past uh, for Macs. Um, the pluggable adapters are seem to be what most people on the panel here use. Um, those are solid things that I've used as well in the past, uh, but experiment where you can understand that if it's for production, use something that's tested and confirmed, but there's definitely a lot of different options out there for USB to HDMI. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell. 
Never had a problem with an OWC product. So I recommend going there to find just about every flavor of dock that's available or hub. Yeah, the, the USB-C to HDMI adapter specifically that I get are the Unis, the UNIs off of Amazon. And I have many, <laughs> you know, like many, I have their HDMI to USB, USB-C cables, and then I have many of their converters. And it's just been the one that from a cost perspective, from an ease, to, ease of use perspective, and from a stability perspective, yeah, that I that I use. It's just, they've just worked really well. And they have braided, braided cables, which is, <laughs> you'll find that I'm a little obsessive about. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Next question from Stefan Fischer from Wurzburg, Germany. What are the recommendations of the panel for a Dante-capable monitor controller? I'm just trying to think of a Dante. I'm assuming when you say monitor, you're talking about speaker controller. Um, uh, or I'm not sure whether it's a, you know, what we use in the office is an X32. <laughs> to do that, to do that, we just, we have, uh, you know, we, the stuff, all the signals come in, get managed, and then sent back out over Dante to powered speakers um, to make that work. And I'm not certain that that is what you're trying to do. Um, the other thing that we use in a larger scale or we see used in a larger scale are the BSS 806s and 326s um, that are going to give you an enormous, and that's going to be able to go out to Crown Amps and, you know, Crown Amps and, and the BSS are both owned by Harman Kardon. And so they, they, uh, they tie into the blue network. And so you can actually tie a lot of those things in. That's like heavy duty industrial sized control um, from there. And we're going to go a little over just because we got a bunch of questions left over. We ran, we ran a little slow. Now, next question. Stefan Fischer is here again from Würzburg, Germany. Office hours made me follow lots of YouTube channels. Now I need to organize them. I found some software offers, but they all end up in a subscription service. Is anything else recommended? I have to admit that I I, I make no attempt to organize my YouTube uh, browsing. I, I get up and I see new stuff from stuff I'm subscribed to. Um, anything that I start watching, I go, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to watch this right now, but it looks cool. I put it in my you know, watch later folder, big, big pile of it that I jump into when I'm on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon. I don't feel like thinking too hard. I, I'll sit down and watch a couple of those. Um, yeah, go ahead, John. I just trust the YouTube algorithm. <laughs> just trust the algorithm. Oh uh, yeah. So I, I've subscribed to it. So mostly what I see in my recommendations are things I've subscribed to. So I, I usually see, uh, and I, and I will admit that I, I probably watch YouTube more than any, any other, um, any other service. So, uh, I, I think I probably see most of those things go through just because it's mostly showing me subscriptions. Uh, next question. Next question from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Have changes occurred with the office hours email services? The daily emails quit arriving sometime around October, and I've checked my spam folders but do not find the daily emails there. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, yeah, they switched over. I think it's MailChimp, and they're usually pretty good about uh, getting spammed. If you... Uh if you go up to the officehours.global site and sign in again, like just, just put your email in again, see if you get it the, the next day. What we did was we pulled all of the stuff from the webinar and we imported it into MailChimp. Um, and that merge can sometimes be a little bit messy. So um, we so I it, it, we may have lost a handful of folks. We gained a lot of folks too, so it was worth it. But it was it, but the best way to go is to go to officehours.global and sign up you know, there, and then it should automatically feed back in. And if you don't bring the question up again in a couple of days, if you still don't have an email, we'd love to make sure that we're getting out to you. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Josh asks if uh, you are using some sort of email filtering service, in which case maybe you need to check to see if that's filtering it out. And the other thing is you, you might want to re-sign up on officehours.global under join us on the top right. 
Yeah. I, there are a handful of people that I'm probably going to unsubscribe because I get like a, hey, you have to fill something out every day <laughs> because it because the, the goes out to them and it comes back as, as a you spam arrest or whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm just going to take them out of the list because I, I, I'm not going to fill this out. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, would there be a plug-in to imitate, imitate the classic Sonovox effect popular in radio IDs and software? Go ahead, John. Uh, Bazovox is one. Uh, Waves has o- Ovox, the vocal synthesizer, and then Isotope has the vocal synth. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, that's the thing. It sounds like, and the beat goes on. You know, sort of like that. But uh, the king of Sonovox is John Wolfert, the president and owner of Jam Creative Productions in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Or just search for vo- vocoder plugins, which is a very similar device that takes a, uh, a microphone signal and uh, modulates a, another electronic signal with the microphone signal. Vocoder, there's hundreds of them. I found a site that shows the 10 best vocoder plugins for 2022. So do a little search for vocoder. Uh, next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, if you wanted a physical indicator of online questions without just a screen, how would you do that? A light or whatever? Yeah, go ahead, Tlaloc. Can't hear you, Tlaloc. Unmuting works better. Um, uh, If you're trying to indicate that a question has come in, it depends a little bit on how you're bringing, how those questions are coming in. If they're coming in on chat, you could use Zoom OSC to uh, look for those questions and then send a DMX signal out to turn a light on. And then you could have a light, you know, indicate that there's a question coming in. You could uh, put that on a monitor. You could put that on the lower thirds. There's all kinds of different ways you can make that happen. Next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. Alex, you talk about using smartphones as audience engagement tools. How do you guard against poor mobile network coverage or Wi-Fi congestion impairing the audience engagement process? That's why we keep it to just text. <laughs> you know, so it usually, it might take a second for it to happen, but generally most people's um, cell phone will work even in a theater if you're only sending, sending a handful of characters. Um, next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. Office Hours currently uses a 4K backend, but could an FHD stack be as successful? Of course, not for HDR or surround. Perhaps targeting a different form factor, for example, or just maxing out at FHD for less dollars. Uh, we could, and and we mostly are doing FHD right full HD uh, right now. Um, but you know, I think that part of our use in the world is to keep pushing the envelope forward. You know, so the reason that we're not stuck with that is that we know that there's a future of 4K and HDR and 5.1, and we want to be figuring that out on a daily basis as opposed to when someone asks for it. <laughs> you know, so you don't want to. Your, your best case scenario when you're dealing with uh, new cl- with clients is something that you've been fiddling with in the back end that you've been doing over and over and over again, and then finally they ask for it, and you can easily execute it as opposed to having to build the whole system from scratch. So um, that's why we're doing that, is to keep on pushing that envelope, and we'll keep on making office hours itself more and more complicated, not less complicated, um, so that we can keep on, you know, in, in, in a hopefully in a responsible way, um, uh, so that we can keep on, uh, you know, figuring that out as a group. So all of us are learning how, how this works and what it looks like, and we can discuss it. And as we get a little bit more hardware in that we're still waiting for, back-ordered, uh, supply chain issues, uh, you'll see that us push that really, really hard. And again, we're all going to learn from that as a group. 
and it's going to make all of our shows better and make us all more prepared for when those things become, you know, when, when HD started, when I did 1080p, as a good example, when I did 1080p full HD for, for Mac break in 2005, it was seen as absolutely insane. You know, absolutely the dumbest thing ever. And I was told that over and over again of like, there's no, you can't watch it. You can't download it. You can't play it back. You can't do all these other things. It was really hard to do. And, um, it, it turned out really well for me. <laughs> Just, you know, like, like then I've, I've done, I've, uh, you know, we, we got a lot of work because suddenly we were the high end of the stick, you know, and people would come to us because they saw that we were the only ones that could do that. And so, um, so I think that you want to, you know, you, you can decide you want to compete with the commoditized market or you can keep on pushing into the front end of the market where there's a, a lot of opportunity. Um, I, I prefer to be on the sharp end of the stick. Um, okay. We are now changing subjects and we're going to talk a little bit about office hours 2.5. Uh, we have, we have, we have, con we are continuing the process. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, we will, we will be largely, you know, uh, have that done and we'll start looking at, uh, 3.0 or 2.8 or whatever we decide to call it, um, later, but we're uh, finishing this, this change here and I'll let Tlaloc give us some of the highlights of what's happened since the last time we gave everybody an update. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Um, okay, so some of the big things is that we've changed uh, racks on the on the physical hardware uh, to a larger rack, and and that um, uh, went very very well with the help of Kevin and JJ. So well, um, I didn't even notice. Like someone asked, "Did we make the change on Sunday?" And I was like, "I guess we did because we're here." You know, like, so I was really busy on a production, so I wasn't paying attention. I didn't pay attention. It wasn't me. It was JJ and Kevin and a couple other yeah. folks, but mostly JJ and Kevin. Uh, figured out how to get that moved. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and it, 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 is, it worked well and put, put a lot of effort into it. Got a, uh, some, a couple more pieces of gear um, to house some of the Mac minis and uh, also some, um, some new web presenters. And uh, cable, you know, like it's crazy when you do this kind of thing, all of a sudden you need cable and you need uh, little dongles and this and that and the other. So that's how that kind of all put, got put together. Another big huge thing that happened is that we um, we changed the Isadora patch in a pretty major way. Um, and what we did is Juan Robles from Mexico City has been working very diligently and, and on making um, the process of taking the Zoom OSC or slash Zoom ISO data, the OSC in, incoming data from, from there, and the Mukana data and and keeping that in the brain in a way that is much more robust and much more efficient. And what that means is that when things need to shift around in the, in the smart gallery, there's no, um, there's no re reset or resync that has to happen. And so you don't end up with uh, like a black flash. It's really, really clean. It's really great. Um, the next steps that have to happen with that is that we need to sort of take the control panel that is actually in Isadora and push push those commands out to universe so that people outside of the um, the local the LAN can um, can make uh, controls on setting up where people are in the gallery etc um, as well as 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 making a lot of those uh, um, processes a little bit more uh, automated when they need to be depending on the personnel that we actually have. Um, and so it was, it was a little scary because it, it was a really big change. Um, all of the commands coming to the Constellation, SBX, 
um, and mix effect were are the same as they used to be. But ahead of that, the information coming from Mukana and Zoom OSC are uh, very different. And so it was a we just said let's do it. We'll rip off the bandaid, and we did. And it it had a couple little things, but it was amazingly well well done. So, you go ahead, Mitchell. What were uh, the special considerations for yesterday's show, uh, the second hour when we had the folks from Zoom in on with the multi camera? It seemed like there's a little bit of scrambling going on, but we yeah. accommodated it. So what happened was that they were all in the same room with three mul- three different cameras and one mic which means that you're not getting information of who is speaking at any given moment on, on uh, active speaker. And so, uh, so what that means is that you had to have Josh Kaufman on the graphics ME put in uh, lower thirds uh, manually um, for each of those people so that um, otherwise, you know, whenever, and what we set it up to, to do is if they were speaking and, the automated lower thirds were working. We would call it, you know, Zoom Team Live or something more generic that would allow that would cover all three of them. But when each individual person were talking, we had to do that manually, and so that's that's the consideration that was in place. By the way, the folks, uh, if you have questions, go ahead and throw those in. If you don't, uh, we'll, this will be a real short trip. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, uh, so uh, but if you have questions about our what we're doing here, let us know. Uh, one thing uh, I was going to show you is um, the. It's, it's just a rough, this is when it was just finished. So nothing's been cleaned up yet. No one's figured out how to make it look nice yet. But just to give you the raw, like what the rack looks like, that is the, that is the OH rack. <laughs> so that is, um, it, the, the last rack was about this big, you know. And so um, this is the new, the new rack um, that, is, uh, um, that, that gives us a lot more room. This is the area that we're kind of, we're waiting for some hardware. Um, we've got some other spaces there. And again, we haven't cleaned it up at all yet. This was like they had very little time to get from one place to the other because we had you we run this every day, <laughs> so there's not and there's no backup, so we had to get kind of uh, moved over. But uh, you know, again, Kevin and JJ did a great job of getting all that stuff over and working and making it. You know, I kind of expected Sunday to be, oh, someone's going to send me a ping that says we have to do this uh, the old way. <laughs> you know, like I wasn't, sure. but that's why we did it on Saturday. I was like, well, if any day we're going to do it, we'll do it on Sunday. Um, but uh, it didn't didn't turn out that way. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, it was a big vent on the side. The air conditioning for that rack that's coming in. Yeah, yeah. Keep it cool. The, there is. Um, it actually goes past it. Um, this goes down the, the spine. This is one of the few building rooms in the building that actually have. I think we're only using one of them now, but it has actually two AC services. Um, this used to be the the room that it's in um, used to be print graphics for Industrial Light and Magic, and so um, so it had a lot. It needed a lot of. Uh, uh, cooling and and um, and flow, and so so there's a it, it's it's one of the handful of rooms in the building that you can really make cold, you know. And, but it's very loud because you hear the the AC services are pretty. Uh, uh, they're not they're not designed for sound. So um so anyway so there's there's that. I also had another uh, question for Talalik. Um, I watched the uh, I wasn't able to to be on the panel yesterday, but I did watch it uh, via Chromecast on my big sixty five inch, and uh, I did notice that there was a difference from the people coming in from the Zoom room uh, that they seem to be lower resolution and definitely a lower frame rate. Uh, were they were you handling them differently on your end? Were you able to get ISOs from them, or did you just have a single feed that was switched on their end, which caused the problem with the lower thirds? No, we had ISO ISOs coming in, um, but uh, 
<laughs> we were struggling to get them past 360. We did finally did when they changed computers to an M1, but we weren't able to get them to full HD. So, and and what Zoom ISO does is when something doesn't have full re- resolution coming in from from ISO, sorry, from Zoom, is it it scales it up into the appropriate um, resolution to work with. But you can certainly see that when that happens. It was very obvious when they cut from Alex who had this pristine, super sharp. And I noticed my home theater system was receiving Dolby Digital Audio. So uh, it was going out live over uh, YouTube with Dolby Digital Encoding. So, uh, Go ahead, David. Can you mention why we struggled to get even 360? I think it was CPU, right? We, yeah. we were asking that computer to do a lot because we were doing that's that's three uh, three inputs into one Zoom room, and so um, I think that we may have to kind of think through that. I think a lot of us were excited at first about that, and I think that it's still a lot of possibility, but it may require beefy machine to to do that well to encode that back into the system. Talik, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> okay, a good bill. I was just going to make a note. It was interesting for me hosting yesterday because typically I know what I'm doing next. The fact that we had three guests in one place without any indication of which of them might be responding to a question was weird to me. Uh, I had to actually rearrange my screens to see them, and I was trying to get visual cues off who might lean forward so I would know, you know who goes next. Thankfully, they they are all so skilled that they were able to kind of step in. But it was a weird, the rhythm of these things is really easy because you get into a rhythm and you kind of know what you're doing next. And when suddenly you don't know what you're doing next, it's an odd feeling. When we have ex- when we have guests, and, and I would barely say the liminal team is an external guest, but when we have an external guest that isn't part of the panel normally, I realize how dependent I am on the panel view, you know, and, and how we, you know, get used to managing that. And so we're working, uh, I'm working on a design to, you know, hand to Chris that is just a, just for the a, pan, a guest. Here's the guest view, and you're going to see the questions coming up for you. And you can put in which you know, especially if we have more than one. If we want one guest, it's pretty simple. But if we have more than one guest, we really want to make it an easy place for them to just put their put you know sign in and put their name in, and and not necessarily have the reason we don't usually give. I mean, and again, liminal is a little different than than other folk, external guests. We don't need to. You know, having them see the panel chat while we're trying to work out stuff can be very distracting for someone who hasn't seen it before. So we don't necessarily want to have the same view, but we want to have a nice, clean, simple view for them that they can see that and then they can re- respond to that. And we're thinking about how that affects the Commenda implementation inside of uh, Zoom as well. So that, you know, uh, based on who they are, they see a different view of of what that looks like that's most appropriate to them. Um, and so we're, we're kind of working, you know, working through those puzzles, but it is... When we have multiple people and they're not able to be on the back end raising their hand, it is, I just realized what it used to be like. And it's just brutal. And I don't even understand how anyone else runs a panel. <laughs> like, like at this point, you know, we're so good at it. It's so, it's so seamless here. Like it just, you know, I, I just remember all the uncomfortableness that we had before we had solved that problem. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, we were working through some, well, I was working through some audio problems and Bill and I were doing stuff that, Nobody, I don't think, noticed it on the outside. But uh, did that kind of make it hard for them to follow, or were they, were they actually following our communication? No, I don't the think they, they saw that. Yeah, because okay, I don't think cool. they were in it. Yeah. But next question. Next question in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. What do you see as further refinements based on Zoomtopia this year? Go ahead, Tlaloc. I don't know about uh, in, in terms of Zoomtopia, but I do know at 
at the beginning of the week, we got um, uh, a new update from Liminal for Zoom ISO, and there's some more Zoom OSC handles there. And I think that is something that we're going to work to start u- utilizing. Um, and then also one of the big things that that that's down the pike for us is is audio and and working having a different audio workflow and and you know this new rack and a new switch and the way we're running things in this new rack is a big part of that. Yeah. And it's a, and, and I, I just want to commend the amazing work that there's a, there's a, a big, I don't know how big the team is, but there's a big team that's like figuring out the architecture and figuring out how to make this work and putting it all together. And I don't know, maybe Richard or Talala can give me a better list of the folks that are, that are working on that back end. Um, I don't want to leave anybody out, but, um, but it's just an incredible, like when we do these develop, we have developer meetings, um, Mostly once a week, <laughs> so I missed this week because I was uh, in production on Tuesday. Um, but uh, uh, or we were covering Zoomtopia on Tuesday, and um, but uh, but I think that you know, it's just amazing to see what people are thinking through and figuring out on the back end. And and again, I I'm not I don't I'm not going to say that office hours is the future, but I will say that it's pointing towards something. This this distributed production pipeline, and we're figuring out thought processes around it, and um, that is pretty important. Uh, next question. David Paskin, Miami, Florida, asked, during the pre-show, we were watching a time-lapse of the build of the rack. Are we ever going to have the technological capability to not have such a mess of wires for builds like this? <laughs> well, again, usually what happens is, is you you build it, you, you, uh, you build something quickly, then you make it work, and then you make it pretty. <laughs> That's, so, so, uh, so the first thing is just get it working. Uh, you know, don't spend too much time trying to figure out how to lace up all the all the bits and pieces when we don't. We have very little time to get it done, and then make sure that it's working. Bang on it a little bit, but you'll see as we put after we put a little bit more of the equipment in, we'll probably back up and then we'll relace all that all that wiring to to make that work. But it's if you get caught up in that, a, a lot of times what what happens is that you get caught up in trying to make it pretty from the very beginning. And it actually slows down making it work, you know, and so that's the thing you have to watch for. Go ahead, David. I'm actually not thinking about how it looks. I'm wondering about the technology and, and wireless technology. Is, uh, is there a future where we're not having to patch things together, where we're able to use technologies like Dante or NDI to, to uh, virtually make those connections? Um, at the resolution and performance that we're looking for, it may not, may not be, you know, at, if you decide you want to do 4K HDR, the answer is not yet. <laughs> you know, so that's the, I mean, uh, that's the, that's the real problem. The other problem is, is that if I want to do some processing right now, it's a piece of hardware away from being fixed. I can find that hardware. I can put that in. I can process the audio or video. When I do it in NDI, the, I got to find the right software. And is it going to take this in? And, there, and there's a lot less options, actually, in the way that, that you process that. Because there's a lot of hardware that's built out. Though that hardware may cost money. But it is, it's something that I can actually do. You know? um, and, it, and, some, and there's a lot of places in software right now that I'm not clear that we could do what we wanted to do. And we'd end up bouncing against the wall because it's still new. Um, it's still, you know, that part isn't fully developed yet. And so you can do basic, you know, full HD shows and that do many of the things that we do here. And you, you, most people wouldn't see the difference, but for us to keep on pushing the outer envelope. The other thing is, is that system is designed to be the front end of doing things that are actually on site there where we might have 10 or 20 cameras, you know, on that stage, you know, we're, we're building into that future. Um, and we've, you've seen us use it a couple times with the concerts that we've done from that stage and other things that, that we want. And that's, we might have a whole slew of cameras there. Now taking all those cameras and trying to push them back into a CPU system or into the cloud becomes 
a pretty heavy lift, you know, and and so it's and especially if we want to do a four K HDR surround. And again, that's we're we're trying to get our head around that because that is the future. Like it is, you know, like the future is a four K immersive HDR, you know, world. It might be two years, three years, whatever, but it's you know it's it's coming. And so we want to make sure that we're developing for the future. You, you always want to throw the ball to where the receiver is going, um, not where they are now. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Yeah, I think um, you know as we all all know that when we come onto Zoom and people can hear immediately that we're on Wi-Fi, you know that that and yeah. and I think I think kind of having redundancy in pathways is not a bad thing. You know, and and having having these things go sort of direct, not putting your Dante on the same on the same line as all your control uh, in terms of Ethernet. You know, having those things split out is actually a good thing, despite the fact that we see that photograph that Alex put and go, ugh. You know, um, but it's it's actually I think it's actually a good thing, and it can be made to look different later. I, I agree with Alex. The minute you start you start putting those things in for prettiness, then you have to cut it all out again to make a change. So um, that's a big thing. And I don't know if it's possible for us to look at the time-lapse, um, but that would be pretty cool. If someone has the playback, I don't know where that time-lapse actually is. <laughs> so so the, um, uh, but the, um, and I, I will tell you that I've, uh, over the years, I've taken an enormous amount of work from people who are running software-based systems. <laughs> like, like I'm, ruthless about it like you know so so like i you know and so the part of the way i stick with my hardware is if you have a glitch if you have a client that has a glitch with their soft you know someone did a software program with a tricaster or vmix or whatever and they have a problem i immediately tell them why because <laughs> software and it poisons their mind and then eventually they just leave it they don't then you know they don't want it because they'll see that glitch i'll tell them what the glitches are the glitches in software are slow frame rate um you know loss of sync um, you know, loss of loss of signal. Um, you know, things stalling as they start to play out. Those are all the things that that, that that happen with software. And if I point that out to a client or or someone that I'm working at, they'll see it all the time because it happens in software um, based events all the time, and it'll drive them crazy until they don't want to use it anymore. <laughs> so, so that's I mean that's how you know, and because it's just not it's not solid. Right, you go go ahead and put, let's go ahead and rewind that and play that back again. It's very cool to watch. Yeah, I don't know how long it went. It's pretty go. long. Uh, JJ has it, by the way. Okay, well, you can see it kind of. You can see them moving there. It's not. I don't think it's in program, is it? It's not in. I'm just sitting here in program, looking at it. So someone hasn't put it into program. I think it's just in slate. Um, there we go. So you can see them moving everything over because it was. That's the little rack that was there before, and you can see the, the move to the to the to the bigger rack here. Um, so we'll, we'll make sure we put that up somewhere. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. We, we'll keep um, on talking while we watch it. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Uh, you know there are. are yeah, keep it on the. Keep it on the. On the. Yeah, that's okay. You don't need lapse. to look at me. Yeah, keep it on the time lapse. There me. we go. Yeah, okay. put up the time. Uh, yeah, there are fiber type multiplexers out there, but is there a standard? Uh, but most uh, in this rack, obviously. Those are designed for backbone for transmitting uh, multiple signals over a long distance, and we don't need that in the rack because that's where all the signals would break out to connect to their individual control units and head units. Is there an interchange format, uh, light pipe, or some type of uh, interchange format that uh, different manufacturers could adopt to put a single fiber optic uh, connection on the back and then uh, split multiplex to video and audio signals input and output kind of like dante audio video yeah i mean 
but people, that I mean, would become a standard, you know, for interface. There's a, the, you know, what everyone's talking about is 2110. 2110 is the, is the format that Sempty wants to put in there. The, the hard part is that they're having a hard time getting it um, supported wide enough and NDI keeps on taking ground. So the, the, the longer 2110 takes, the less chance that it, it has of becoming a standard because, you know, um, you know, new tech is continuing to improve NDI to a point where um, it, it may uh, be able to, to kind of, um, yeah, pass that up. So, so the, uh, so I think NDI right now is still winning, um, but it's not, but 2110 is designed to truly take, you know, uncompressed data and move it around, um, you know, in a much more, you know, it's taken a long time to get that standard working. It's probably five years behind where it needed to be, you know, to, to really, because people were waiting for it longer than, you know, Dante for many of us existed before we even knew that it existed, you know, and so it's just, they got out early enough that, that they, but with uh, with twenty one ten, we knew we needed to go to some kind of IP connection five years before they had it ready for us, which is problematic. <laughs> Look at JJ, just JJ. Oh <laughs> I saw what you did there, JJ. <laughs> anyway, so that's funny. All right. Um, anyway, we'll we'll get this time lapse up. For, but that's the that's the hardware. And just remember that the cloud is always someone's hardware somewhere. <laughs> so How long did it take to actually do it? We're seeing it in seven minutes. What seven hours seven hours start to stop yeah there you go all right let's go to the next question we can go back to you can uh, yeah you can keep the time lapse up if you want uh, this is the follow-on uh to the previous question alex is office hours 2.5 ready for the cement well i think we're poor so we're, we just poured some cement by moving that rack uh, you know a lot of the you know what what happened was is that you know we we had to kind of figure out where we are you know there was a lot of discussion about first figuring out what the the rack the first rack was very um organic you know like we put it together pretty quickly and uh it, it first started with uh you know Andy and Jonathan actually putting it together you know um and uh and then we you know and then JJ you know expanded it from there so then we looked at what that rack was doing and then looked at where we want the rack to go make sure we have spaces and we have enough space to go to the next thing and then move those things and leave those gaps for where things need to be added. Um, and so that was where we, you know, kind of went. I think we are slowly burning, you know, by the end of the year, 2.5 will be 2.5, <laughs> you know, and that's not where, and we're, you know, then we'll start making discussions about 3.0 or 2.8 or whatever we decide to call it. Um, um, if it's, you know, and and we'll, but we'll probably then start that rollout over next summer, you know, so, so that will be, um, you know, so, it'll, but we'll discuss it for quite some time and figure out what we're doing and try not to change anything for a little while as we kind of build up. Um, my goal for the next version is to build it in parallel. So my goal is not to rebuild this, but to build the next generation of this completely as a rack next to it, running the running the event. The great thing about Zoom ISO is that if we have the computers, the compute, we could be running two separate events controlled by the, and eventually that gives us redundancy, but it means we can run two separate events in parallel and slowly build up the next version um, completely on its own. But we have to find some partnerships to do that because it's, it's a lot, hardware is expensive. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. As someone who has been tasked occasionally to do corporate history things, does somebody take a hero shot of the original rack before you disassembled it? You know, I think it's around somewhere. Uh, I should have. I, I I did think about that uh, earlier this week. I was like, I don't know if we took a picture of the of the original rack. Um, I'm, I'm sure that somebody must have at some point. So I have to go back and look. I think I might have sent it to somebody, but yeah, I have to figure that out. It's a little yeah, it, it is it a little down, sad. put it in a folder. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. From Lucas Herzog in Mance, Germany, could you show how the Isidore backend looks like now? Good, Swalok. 
Yeah, I think we have a graphic ready for that. And so hopefully that'll be cut in. Um, there's two sides to it. Uh, one is the actual patch where you see all the, all the you know, lines hooked to it and, um, and the, all, the, all the work that Juan did and, and all the previous work that we did sort of that's there that, to talk to SPX and the Constellation. Um, and then the other side to it is the control panel side. And that control panel side is really where the, the, this new patch shines um, in the way that um, uh, we, can move, we can move panelists back and forth and we can keep kind of working through the, the show in a, in a much, much more clean way, which is what we hope to expand out to, um, to universe. That's uh, it's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. As someone who doesn't know anything about code or development, that is both terrifying and one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, it it is. Uh, you know, it's an incredible amount of uh, incredible amount of work and and thought process that goes through to build that. And and again, I think it's informing a lot of things around um, you know how even Zoom thinks about what these what it takes to have these productions you know work through it. And the advantage of having it be something that's kind of low code. Um, that we, you know, that we're able to kind of throw things together. Um, there is some code in there, there's a, but there's a lot of it that is um, allowing us to think through. And again, this is why I keep on saying that this is a, it's pointing towards a future. It is, it, you know, someday someone's going to probably take this and write, you know, C++ code or, or, or Swift or whatever they want to use to build something that does all of these things as a tool. The problem with that is that when you go into software architecture and you start writing that code and you haven't done a bunch of it, you're writing for something that you assume is going to be there and it may be moving. And so what, what Isadora allows us to do and with the great team that's working on this is think of things and relatively quickly, you know, when I think about adding new features when I work on software teams, I think in months, you know, and we think in days and weeks, you know, here where we're going to add something in a couple of weeks, we're going to have something. I don't think that way when I do large scale software. I think in, well, we'll have this in this quarter and this in this quarter, you know, and so, um, and so it allows us to kind of figure those things out that then can inform something else or inform others to think about what it takes to actually do that. Next question. From Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, Roscoe asks, please discuss the perfect operator for behind the scenes and the training offered. Is there a progression of positions so one can observe for days from one seat before moving on to a harder task? Go ahead, Richard. Uh, yeah, the the perfect operator is you, um, and when I say you, I mean the people watching and the people listening, um, because anyone can join into the team, get access, start to learn what's involved. The best way to learn it is to get involved and to sign up for the training. Um, it's really easy. You can sign up for um, some low impact roles and then sign up for the really high impact roles. Um, Saturdays and Sundays tend to be the main training days, um, so you know anyone can really get involved and really get a nice uh, sense of of how everything connects together. And you know the team are very gentle and taking. People People through it and giving you time and answering questions. So uh, yeah, get involved. I think uh, if Josh hasn't already, he probably will put the link to the sign up uh, in 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 Discord uh, or in uh, in the chat here. And uh, yeah, get involved. Uh, next question, David Brady from New York, New York. Can you punch through the components in that rack? You know, we will do that. I'm not going to do it today, um, mostly because. I'll be honest. I, I looking at the rack. I, I we talked about it. I, I couldn't do it off the top of my head. I have to prep it a little bit to say what each piece does, and I got to make sure that I, I just want to be accurate about it. Um, but what we're going to do is once we get a little closer to the end of two point five, 
I, I, I realized that we need to kind of back up. There's a lot of new people watching and there's a lot of people that just didn't see the last episode when we talked about how Office Hours runs. And we're going to do another second hour that's just, this is how it works. And we're going to dig more into the... Um, we're going to dig more into the the Isadora patches, the signal flow of how it works. I mean, everything that we're doing, our goal is to be completely uh, uh, transparent. Like we want people to learn from what we're doing, steal from what we're doing, build their own versions of what we're doing um, to keep moving that down the path. It's not about us, you know, having some cool secret thing. It's about, you know, people working through it. So we're going to break all of it, all, you know, you know, talk through how all this stuff works how the comms work, how the how the system works, how the patches work, how the controls work. And we may do that over a week or or, or more um, to, to kind of break that all apart so that you understand how that works. Um, but I don't think I can, I don't think I can accurately do it today. <laughs> Go ahead, John. I'm just wondering if there'll be a DVE store bundle. You know, we yeah, can just exactly. uh, one click by the... <laughs> yeah, when we talk about it, I mean, I think that that is, I do think that the smaller version that I'm working on right now, um, there there should be a DVE store. Store bundle um, because that one is really compact and um, I haven't had time because of productions to to really I got part of it done and now I'm now I have time <laughs> so next uh, next week I'm going to be kind of digging into how that like running sh like how would I run a show with and that's the Mac Mini with a with a quad card and a extreme uh, SDI you know tied into it and with mix mix effect Pro and everything else and I think that's a mini version of this that we can put together but again this one is designed to be the you know. Uh, you know, I really think of this as an F1 team, you know, like this is, you know, we're, you know, we're going to end up building some, some, you know, uh, Ford Mustangs, but we need an F1 version that, that, uh, um, that, that stretches all of our technology forward. Um, next question. Stefan Fischer from Wurzburg, Germany. What is the total amount of money in that rack? Would a backup system be the same thing or would this be a different architecture? Good, Flawlock. Okay, I, I'm not, I can't speak to the money because I'm not entirely sure what, what those costs are. But I will speak to the backup. I think there's a couple different ways to think about backup. We have a full redundancy system where we have exactly what we have again, I think would be great. But we also have to think about backup for other reasons. You know, if there's some other large malfunction in some place, then we should we should we need to have different tiers of backup. You know, can we do just active speaker? Can we, you know, move to just thinking through what happens if there's a if there's a problem and what we what what our um MVP would be to get out a show at that particular moment. And one of the things that I'm actually thinking about as I think about um I think that 3.0 will still be a hardware system. I think 4.0 will be a software so it'll be in the cloud. So I think that my goal is to have you know so 3.0 will roll out sometime next summer. The goal is in 2024 we'll have um uh, 4.0 rollout. And when we do that, I think it's going to all be in the cloud. One of the things I've been thinking about is starting to consider running the weekends on starting to build a cloud system that runs the weekends. Like we're not going to try to run those in 4K. We're not going to try to run them in HDR. We're not going to try to do any of those other things. And like, what does it look like to start building an infrastructure, maybe not the weekends, but Sunday or, or one of the days or a day a week that we start building that infrastructure to, and it might take us months to build the infrastructure to make it work. But that could be our backup. Like we build up something that we could run a show the way we run this show. And it may not be the the be all end all of everything, but it still looks like a, a very solid full HD show. Um, and I think that there's a potential for us to start. And that would give us lots of time to start thinking about 
cloud production, you know, and and be able to, um, you know, think through that. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about as a backup. Um, running, the, the other problem really is that running cloud every day would start to add up. The, I think the, the cost of this is probably in between thirty and $40,000 worth of hardware at the moment. Um, with the other parts that we're waiting for, that's another, you know, the parts that were that are back order is probably another fifty thousand dollars worth of hardware. So, um, so it, you know, it's a, it's an expensive rack. Even with that expense, um, running something, we just have to remember that running something in the cloud that has a lot of CPUs and a lot of things feeding in and everything else is will add up too. You know, like it may not add up to that, to that immediately, but doing it every day is not necessarily cheaper than the hardware. Um, you know, when we when, when the dust settles, especially if we're doing it more hours. My goal is to get office hours running 24/7. Uh, go ahead, David. What are those pieces that are on back order that are so expensive? FSHDRs. So the the FSHDRs allow us to um, uh, the FSHDRs will allow us to um, shade each person individually for HDR so that we can tune every person. There's a bunch of other things it can do, but that's one of the things that it, it'll allow us to do is take every panelist and, and shade them properly. The next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri asked, what kind of audience do you have in mind when building office hours? So the audience that I have is anybody that wants to tell their story with media. You know, I don't have it like it's that it's, you know, and I, I hope that we're able to build an audience that is heterogeneous. So I, I look at, I want people to be all over the world with all different backgrounds, with different levels of experience. My goal is to try to make it useful for someone uh, that does works in broadcast every day. And we have a handful of people here that are that are definitely on the high end of, of broadcast development. Um, a lot of them aren't as vocal, um, uh, but the, uh, but, but have, uh, some of them there, as well as people who are just beginning, who are trying to figure out what camera they should use. I mean, you look at Tony Mobley started with a laptop and trying to figure out how to hook up a mic. He's now running shows and he looks great. And, you know, he totally understands it. And that's the goal is that someone can come in and be totally supported. And I think that there is a, there's always been, the, with PixelCore, we saw this, with Office Hours, we saw this. There is an energy that someone new to this and a new idea, a new way of thinking that people that are new to it come bring to the, to the, to the game. And then there's an experience and, and um, guidance that can be provided from the folks that have done this a lot. And if the more heterogeneous that can be, the folks that are new are injecting energy and makes it exciting. They're also going to show us things that we didn't, you know, there's, there's things that I go, oh, you can't do that. And then people do it here. And I go, oh, maybe you can do that. And then next thing you know, I'm using it. So, so, the, so there's a lot of things that we can get caught up in our old ways of doing things because those were stable. And the last time we came up and tried that, it didn't work. And so then we decided, oh, that's, we're not going to use that anymore. And so I think that there's this, this churn that we want to have, but we want to make it continually more and more global. And, and, but it's really, the goal is the entire range of people that are doing audio and theater and events and film and everything else. And we are successful in, in at different levels, you know, based on that. Now, next question. From Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, is show audio going through the X32 rack at this point? How are we bringing ISO audio to the X32? Go ahead, Tlaloc. Uh, it's not running through the X32 yet, um, but when we start to bring out ISO audio, we will be using the uh, Dante workflow. Um, so there's a DVS, a Dante virtual sound card on the Mac minis, and then and then that gets routed out to the, to the X32. And we'll be doing more and more with that as we kind of keep moving down the path. Uh, next question. And I've got a question. Uh, are we at a point where Office Hours 2.5 can be entirely in the cloud? 
Go ahead, Tlaloc. I think the first thing to think about is that um, we're relying heavily on Zoom ISO, and Zoom ISO works only on the M1 Mac Max, or the, not the M1, just the Apple Silicon Max. So um, uh, right now, that's doable in the cloud, but it's expensive in the cloud. So, um, you know, to think through it that way. Yeah, I mean, just the... I'm still paying the the rent on the on our AWS charges, and so you know that would be a much bigger. I mean, I think it would probably cost us. I started doing the math on it, and I think right in our current structure of how we do this, it would probably be um, fifty dollars a show. You know, to do to you know in in uh, AWS charges, fifty to maybe more um, to do this to do this in the cloud. So um, so you start adding that up uh, times thirty, it starts to add up to. Um, you know, real money, <laughs> you know, it would, you know, so that's the other side of this is that, and that's only for the two hours. If we decide we want to go four hours or eight hours or 24 hours a day, that, that um, $50 a show would be a considerably more. I mean, it could cost us hundreds of dollars a day and that will add up to all that hardware really fast. So that's another piece of it that, that we're kind of taking into uh, account with that process. Go ahead, David. What needs to happen for those cloud costs to come down? What, is there a tech, they're just not technology? Built, they're not built for what we're doing. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's. I don't think that it can get much cheaper than what Amazon's charging for the for that that data. I mean, I think that fundamentally, uh, you have to have a business model that is making enough money that it doesn't matter. Like, and many do. You know, many people base their entire operation on AWS. Frame.io has figured out how to charge us for the usage of AWS, and they slapped an interface on the front of it, but that's essentially what they did. <laughs> so Frame, you know, so you have to have a business model that pays for that kind of cost. And as and as you use more and more, you can make get some savings in bulk, um, but the but you have to. Um, but when we're not generating any any uh, revenue um then then we you know or not enough revenue that's a lot of money that we'd be pummeling into uh for the luxury of putting something on the cloud that isn't going to be the same resolution or bit depth or, or or immersive so we're getting less out of it and more into it we do want to experiment with it we do know that someday we hope to be big enough that 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 expense would be um you know a, a able to be you know paid for uh, so it's not that I'm ignoring it. It's just that in the current state that we're in, it doesn't it doesn't pencil out. Um, next question. From Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. What is next as we scale for Question Manager? Um, you know, I think that uh, the Question Manager, so what we've been having is, it used to be that, that the host would be pulling questions over. Um, the, uh, the, now we have a question manager that kind of manages all of that. And I need to start meeting with Laura and others to who want to manage questions and talk about the science of why we do a bunch of the stuff that we do so that there's things like we try not to have the same person questions next to each other. Um, you know, we try to spread that out. If we get near the end of the hour and someone's, we've answered other questions from a person um, and it's a low voted, you know, under two votes, Oftentimes we'll push it back, you know, like, like just put that in another hour because I don't want to rush through it. I just want to, now if you're a new, like just to give you a sense of how this works, if you're a new person and you've never been here before, I will try to prioritize making sure we ask the question in the first hour or answer the question in the first hour because I don't want you to have the experience that you came. We've had people that have reached out to me that came, asked a question, it didn't get answered and then they never came back. You know, so so we, we try to make sure that the regulars, we want to answer all those questions, but definitely new folks get a, this gets back to David's earlier question, but new folks get a slightly higher priority over those questions because we want to make sure that we 
take care of their first you know couple experiences um, so they get kind of used to it so so there's a lot of things that we have to there's it's not as simple and then what we'd like to do is get to a point where you know the question manager will become much more important as we have larger audiences so once we finish 2.5 we're going to start doing I'm, i there's a bunch of pins that i haven't pulled in our marketing can you know abilities because i wanted to get to a point where i felt like we really had the show kind of under control the, we were, We've, we've had black frames until a couple weeks ago, you know, like, so, so, you know, like it's, it is, um, you know, so I wanted to make sure that we had a seamless show, you know, we've come a long way with the panelists, we've come a long way with how the team puts it together. Once we, once we get out of that, we're going to start expanding our audience. And when we expand our audience, it's going to, you know, the question manager becomes more important because there's no way that the, the host or anybody else can keep up with it. The question manager will eventually become a question team that is trying to figure out how to manage all of those things. And we're gonna have to start, we may even have non-panelists answering questions via text, you know, that go out into it so that there's just this, you know, kind of constant flow of, you know, we're gonna, we, we can't get to all the questions, but we're gonna get to them in some way. You know, and, and those are the kind of things that we're gonna have to start making. So that that starts to scale up as we as we have, a, a, you know, because we wanna try to serve people as best we can every morning and answer as many of the questions as possible. Go ahead, David. I think the workflow that you outlined before about um, some questions get pushed to show, other questions get put, get answered in, in chat mm -hmm. makes a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, and it's just, it's just a, you know, it's, we're not there yet, we don't have to do that yet, but we will you know, because we can get to two or 300 questions an hour if we do that. Um, and, and that would be a, a big service. Next question. Next question coming in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Would having a second setup at an alternative site like Chicago be worthwhile? Go to Tlaloc. I think a second setup would be worthwhile, but maybe in Europe or um, somewhere, somewhere a little further away um, uh, for reasons of redundancy and, 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 you know, if there's something in North America that's happening, maybe we can keep moving. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, we, we were actually not too far away from that in some ways because we, um, in the earlier days of 2.0, um, we had Jim's system, uh, the fantastic Jim Hankins, who has a lot of the similar uh, setup. We have uh, my system for Accidental in Belfast that, again, has a lot of the similar setup. So every so often we use other people's systems for testing because they are quite in line with each other, but they're not true backups because, it, you know, as a volunteer group, it's hard to keep everything in sync with each other and, uh, uh, and at the same time, yeah, you know, you have to make sure that people's systems are free and so forth. But you know, as SumiSo gets better and better, and the whole system gets easier, and more people get used to SumiSo, you know, the world is our oyster. Go ahead, uh, John. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to. It. I should have mine completed by the end of the year. So, if you guys ever need assistance, let me know. Excellent. Um, and uh, by the way, this is uh, Andy sent me. This is this is actually version. 0.5. <laughs> this is what it looked like when Andy and Jonathan came out and we were just grabbing stuff and plugging it all in. It was sitting on that table and we were just trying to figure out how this is before it got to a rack. So we have some of the historical, um, you know, stuff there. So that's, but just to give you a sense of uh, where it started, you can see that we, we uh, even set it up so that it was just sitting on boxes, like <laughs> mini boxes of us trying to figure out what to, what to do there. So that's, uh, that's version again, point, probably 0.5. Uh, next question. And Courtney Gooden from Hollywood, California, and here on our panel. Courtney asks, when the M2 Mac minis come out early next year, will you have to pull all the ones in the rack and replace them? What if the physical layout of the mini changes? Johnny Ivey's no longer there. Uh, Richard? 
Yeah, I won't talk talk for office hours too much, but um, I know from my own experience with, again, having a similar uh, kind of setup that uh, uh, the Liminal team's fantastic work on making the M1s work so, so well. I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not dying to change the M2s over, uh, over to M2s uh, with our system, but it'd be interesting to see what the M2s offer, first of all. Good follow. Yeah, along the same lines, I think right now the basic Mac Mini can do a lot and right now we're not trying to overload the outputs on on each one of those because we have multiple multiple M1s working in the process which is a good idea right because if one of them goes down then we still have the others and also it keeps overhead um, very low on all of on all of those machines and uh, so I think it's a really good good workflow for them for the time being yeah but, the um I think that eventually we'll get quad cards for them and, and have three of them doing 24 outputs or in one really being kind of floating as that extra. Um, they we've The testing we've done, the SDI outputs are the lowest impact on the CPU. So that's part of the calculation there is that the SDIs are the easiest ones to... Um, uh, you know, to it's easiest on the on the computers. I don't think that we would need to upgrade to the M2s um, anytime soon based on the testing we've done so far. Um, we may need them for other things, but it won't be this. Um, next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, how can we sign up to volunteer to work on the Office Hours 2.5 production team? The softball is thrown to Richard. Thank you very much, Josh and Alex. Uh, the softball is, the if you've already signed up to the Office Hours mailing list, you have the link already there in your email. So just have a look through the email. There'll be a link in uh, how to get involved in the crew right there. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, Alex, you mentioned the baby office hour system being sold as a DVE store bundle. Wouldn't an office hours 2.0-like system require custom integration commissioning and not be a turnkey product? Uh, We'll see. (laughs) Go ahead, Tlaloc. Yeah, I think um, down the road, it could be pretty turnkey if it wasn't so large, right? You know, if you had, um, you could take... You could take the um, sort of the workflow and make it smaller in terms of Bukana and questions, and and in terms of uh, super source setups and stuff like that. That uh, could be pretty turnkey. Maybe not with a sixteen or twenty person panel, but maybe with a four person panel. Yeah, or an eight. Yeah, like I yeah. think that you know we're looking at the uh, a maximum of eight or even six, so we have some graphics inputs and so on and so forth um, to. Uh, you know, to to make that work, and and I think that there's there will be some ways. And again, it's informed by office hours. Then we test it, then we figure out what works and doesn't work. But I want to. I think that there's a huge market for being able to create shows that we can probably do in hardware a little bit better than what's going to end up being done in in inside of Zoom. Even with what Adam's great work that he's doing, I think that we can add value in other ways to that to that process on our end. Um, and so I think that there's a lot, of, and I want to try to find something that's relatively inexpensive to set up that someone can put in their desk and run lots of little shows, you know. And because I think that that's going to, and I think that there there's places where they'll offer the the Zoom only solution in the production studio, and then people want a little bit more. Well, we got a little piece of hardware. People want a lot more. We've got a, a room full of hardware, um, or a, a cloud full of hardware, <laughs> cloud full of of software. So those are a bunch of different options that we're looking at. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana asks, would it be possible to do an Office Hours 2.5 clone on one Mac Studio with the right mix of software? Go talk. I think it might be possible, but I think that um, with uh, vision vision mixing and uh, audio routing and all of that, that I think the overhead would be a little bit too much. 
My, Go, John. Yeah, I think using Siphon into some sort of like Ecamm solution would potentially allow you to do some of the features, but calling it Office you know, Office Hours 2.5 is probably a stretch. Uh, next question. Cindy Drozda from Erie, Colorado. Who pays for that expensive rack? I've never heard about Office Hours. Ask for donations. Uh, a big chunk of the rack is stuff that I had before we started. <laughs> so, so I, I had, um, I had our, before office hours started, I already had a big pile of that hardware that we that we um, put into that, uh, and then um, uh, I've purchased most of the stuff that's in there that that I didn't start with, um, and then we have you know been supported a little bit um, by a handful of you know corporate sponsors and so on and so forth, and so uh, so the so we've had a little bit of help here and there, but it's been mostly stuff that I had before or. Uh, some stuff that I've acquired, and we are, we are going to, to pass the hat soon <laughs> because I'm, I'm uh, I think I've, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've um, it, I'm running out of money at the end of uh, end of months uh, by by doubling up into the stuff. So, so we will probably um, give people the opportunity to contribute to it if they want to, so that it'll make it a little easier um, as we as we move forward. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I know that feeling when I built uh, my um, Zoom room here with an FX3 camera and the other stuff. All of a sudden. My little brain in the back of my head said, um, hey, <laughs> you're getting a little out of control here. And it truly is a rabbit hole. So I, I feel your pain. I, I often, I, I think I just know that when we start moving into, I've always been resistant to having everybody, you know, having everybody have to worry about that. Um, and I also don't want to be dependent on it either. And I just wanted to kind of keep it slow and moving. But I think at this point, we're going to need to move faster. So we're, you know, there will be, you know, some opportunities. Again, we're not going to take anything away. It's not going to become a membership. It's not going to be, you know, those kinds of things. But I, but I do think we, we could probably use some help to get, it's, it's the monthly payments now that start to add up the MailChimp, the, the, like I, I keep on running out of money because I'm not calculating all of those. So at the end of the month, I suddenly, everything's like, you didn't pay for this. And I'm like, I didn't remember that I had to, I didn't add it all up. I'm not very good at spreadsheets. Anyway, go ahead, David. I just want to offer that people will give or donate or pay for value. And we offer a lot of that because of you. And so pass me the hat. Okay. All right. And we, we have it. It's why we structured a 501c3 and we have a, a, a board. You're not giving money to me. You're giving money to the organization. And, and, I, and we're super concerned about every penny. So, um, you know, so it just, I just want to make sure we want to get, we've got all that structure in place to make sure that no one thought that I was getting, you know, people were giving money to me because um, that's not what I need. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael uh, asked the question, what tools are we using for training? Is it more individually delivered or are there standardized training modules in an LMS? Go ahead, Tlaloc. Oh yeah, we don't have an LMS on this one, but but um, but what we do have is the ability to come in and on on weekends, and we have some incredible trainers, uh, which in all of the segments that that you need to train on, you need to start with the pre-show coordinator and and TJ and Brandon, and it will help you kind of figure out how that works, and that's a really really valuable thing to learn because you can get a job doing that. You know, you can you can set people up. Uh, coming into meetings for other for other folks, that's a really good thing to learn. And then you'll shift over to to I believe the next step is question manager, and you're going to be trained by folks like uh, Laura and by Chad and other others there. And then then you'll shift over to t uh, technical director, um, and and you'll be tra trained by people like Richard and uh, JJ and and others in, in that in that world. And so. It's it's all on comms, and you get individual tutoring, if if you want to call it that, um, on every one of those steps, and it is uh, I think really really great. 
and and you know I we're we're teaching in the way that a human being has learned for the last million years, which is first you hang around other people and listen to them as we were growing up. We'd listen to them talk, you know, and, and we'd listen to it and, and that language would start to make sense. And then we would start to take on what we could take on. And then next thing you know, we were doing it. Like that is, and it wasn't an LMS and it wasn't, there wasn't a curriculum and there wasn't grades and there wasn't, you know, those types of things for the most part. It was mostly experience, you know. And so it's not that we won't build any training. We're going to start building more um, as we go into the into the winter, we're going to build start building some short YouTube videos about maybe not the internal stuff that we're doing, but the you know things concepts that you want to think about in general. Um, and you know we're always here to answer questions, and um, we're going to you know in discussion. But I find you know for, for me the way I learn is uh, I have something that needs to get done. I now have to figure it out. I hope that I have people that I can call to ask questions. <laughs> you know, like that's what, like, okay, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do? This? I just have them tell me how to do that thing, and then I learn the pieces that I needed for that thing, and then I move on. And the next project requires me to learn three other things. But what makes a difference for me is a having a real project that I'm learning, and b having great people around me that can answer my questions. And so we're hoping to provide that kind of nutrient-rich environment so that you can take these things on and then ask questions that come up. And what you should do is work on these things and write them down. Either write them in notes um, on, a, on, a, on your computer or, or write them on a piece of paper and then bring them into office hours and ask those questions. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. And it's expanding outward too because people are asking, how do I become a panelist um, or how do I become a reader? You know, I read and Bill reads and Courtney reads, but other people have expressed interest in doing it. So we hold uh, little uh, breakout rooms on doing that. For example, reading, if you're interested in it, we do a breakout room on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, uh, 6 Eastern. And uh, even if you're just curious, yep. check it out because there's all kinds of things going on in after hours that help you uh, become a citizen of office hours. We're in a, I mean, I know that people think that COVID ended and now everyone's going back to the old ways, but it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a bounce, right? And, and um, the, you know, this is going to be a massive industry. <laughs> like it's just, and it's building fast and you have companies that are in a, they're in a space race, you know, Zoom and, and Teams and many are, are in a huge race and there's a huge amount of investment and it's, it's just functionally the future. Like it's not going to be, the big game is going to, as soon as people start figuring out how to connect and they start getting audiences of hundreds of thousands all the time, they're going to forget that they ever did physical events. Like just, you know, like, like it's like, you know, you started with stage, but TV became the big game, you know? So uh, the numbers just will run everything else over. And so the opportunity right now to get involved with what we're doing is learning this stuff, getting your head around and understanding it long before, uh, you know, you, know, you want to be in the beginning of these things. You want to buy Bitcoin when it was a <laughs> dollar, not, 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 you know, not down the road where you're competing with everybody else. Go ahead, John. Ian's texting me on their side. He said that we could we could actually use the same LMS system that he's using uh, to load up uh, office hours content into that system. Cool, cool. No, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't. I just haven't used the LMSs very much. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Next one in from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. How often or how practical is it for others to use the office hours stack for their own shows, each with their own style customizations? Well, as we get through 2.5, one of the next things that I, I'm interested in is how do we make fast turns and to do to to look a different way and to work on different things and how do we get something that where it could be office hours at nine and be something else at nine oh one. You know, like that is definitely 
um, a goal of the system. It's just, you know, but first we have to get the this part figured out. But over next year, the goal is by the middle of next year, you can just flip it. Like it's, you know, it, it just flips from one show to the next. And that entire show can be a new set of branding, new opens, new closes, new countdown clocks, everything, new lower thirds. So go ahead, Richard. Yeah, exactly as Alex says, it, it's a, um, it's all about the planning and the, and and setting those expectations early on to to make sure that those switches are really easy on the team because the team again is a is a group of volunteers. But the core system, especially because it's uh, the items, load another file and all of a sudden you've got an entirely different media library in your item. You've got in your hyper deck an entirely different um, countdown clock that can be loaded and set up. And then the control system is just a web page. So it is in very, very versatile and can can turn on a dime, but to say for the team with a bit of planning. Yeah. Now, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, what role will the FSHDR units play? Go ahead, Tolik. Um, on one hand, they will help with shading individual uh, panelists, um, and in terms of in terms of their video and, and the color. And the other side is that they can play a role in um, in delay for sync for individual panelists, but they probably won't be the only the only piece of equipment that's part of that role. Next question. Douglas, back again. What cable management tools will you use when it's time to clean up the rack? We'll let you know. <laughs> so I, Kevin's got to figure that out. He'll, he'll get back to me. He'll send me a list of what I need to buy, and then, then we'll go from there. All right, next question. Last question. Could we build a single pane of glass, asked Douglas Carmichael, and it would be used to administer the office hour stack, for example, loading graphics per show? I think at some point, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the big things that, that we're doing right now is trying to really distribute it out um, into lots of panes of glass uh, to, to make that available, uh, that anybody could administer it. So um, so that's kind of where we're focused at the moment. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot going on when it comes to serving graphics and dealing with four MEs and, you know, uh, setting up the gallery. And so I think probably a rethink of, of all of the, customizable handles that are are available to the show would be required in order to drop to a single pane of glass. And I have to admit that my goal somewhere in the future is to build customized hardware so that an operator for bigger events actually had buttons back and dials and things and everything else because um, I find that that is a, um, you know, at some point uh, that is, it's really nice. I want to be able to do it on a on a pane of glass or with a mouse, but there is a, th a thing of, of, of having an operator view that is got hardware on it that you can, you know, oh, Tallock's a little too loud. I just uh, turn turn down the knob. That that is Tallock. <laughs> like you know, like that is you know that this is this is a there's something about having that physical and being able to do it. And when you talk about eventually doing really big events in front of a lot of people, again, my goal, and I don't don't know if it's going to happen. But at some point, if we actually get satellite uplink and we get radio and we engage, we could have hundreds of thousands of people watching. And at that point, we're going to, you know, figure out how we, you know, how we do that in a really powerful way, you know, and we'll, we'll slowly mature into the ability to do that. There we go. Thank you again to the, the incredible team uh, that's working on Office Hours 2.0 to 2.5. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Tallock and Richard and, and, and everyone on the back end that is doing that. And, and again, we're going to, uh, we want to try to find a time we can bring them all on, everybody on that's working on it so they can talk about their own experience there. But we'll, uh, um, but we'll keep on kind of, we, we just want to make sure we keep on giving you updates and give you an opportunity to understand what's going on. Again, we're going to back up and talk, once it's done, we're going to back up and talk about how it all 
works, like how all the stuff pieces together when it's all kind of when the dust is settled, um, just to give you an update on that. But I think that again, it's, uh, I think we're building the future. <laughs> you know, So uh, I just think that it's just an incredible amount of work, incredible team that's putting it together. So thank you all to, um, for, for making that work. And, um, and thanks to the uh, panelists for great conversation, as always. Um, we can't do it without you. And uh, we also can't do it without the producers asking all those questions. And if, you, if you're watching and you haven't asked questions, just try to ask one question a day. Uh, one question a day, no, one question a week. One question, two questions a week. Uh, just throw them in there and help our conversation move forward. Uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, love to find out what you need to solve. All right. And Bill, are you doing the uh, final cut at noon? No, we've we've pretty much completed that. Uh, five of the six lessons, though, are up on the Office Hours website. So if you're interested, go to officehours.global and search Final Cut Pro, and you should be able to find the access to them. Okay, great. All right, let's jump into After Hours. This is my first time whispering. Am I doing it right? This is Whisper 2.0. <laughs> We got 70, almost 70,000 miles on the Tlaloc traversal. 112,000 kilometers. Yesterday, we crushed the traversal. We need a sticker that says Tlaloc traversal. We need a big sticker. That's stickers. The Tlaloc traversal. Boy, are my feet tired. You put, it, you put it on the back of your laptop and people are like, what is the Tlaloc traversal? <laughs> Got to get a great picture of Tlaloc on a, on a plane. Yeah, we need a little badge that says, today on Zoom, I went X miles. Exactly. And all they got was the shirt. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all I got was this web sticker. Just get it to add it to my watch steps for the day. Good job.